Hey, Justin. What's up, Tim? For the podcast today, we watched a movie about a central figure of American history that started in the mid-20th century after being inspired by innovators in Germany. There's a fashion icon with a signature hat who held many roles over the years. Teacher, scientist, soldier. This protagonist goes through an existential crisis and struggles to find their true purpose in life all while avoiding backstabbing adversaries and trying to keep their dream house from being taken away. The lead loves horses and even has a friend named Ken. Although, you know what? It's weird they only called him Ken and not physicist Ken Brainbidge, who you know, I thought was a, an odd choice. And I guess that and all the pink colors. Tim, Tim, I think you were supposed to watch the movie Oppenheimer, but accidentally ended up watching Barbie. Uh, okay, sorry guys. Oops. Uh, hold on. Uh, I'll be back in three hours. Tim, I think you're being super critical. Welcome to another episode of the Supercritical Podcast, where we delve into the fun and often nonsensical ways pop culture portrays nuclear weapons. My name is Tim Westmeyer, someone who studies nuclear weapons and works on nuclear counterproliferation for a living, and I'm joined today in the podcast studio slash over Zoom by my co-host, James Sheehan. James, welcome back. Glad to be back, Tim, uh, for my third episode, I think. Third episode as a host, fourth episode as a guest, I don't know, whatever you want to call it. Happy to be here as a co-host. <laughs> I'm a former recovering transatlantic and terrorism policy practitioner turned tabletop gaming professional. And uh, Tim, I think we have a guest today as well. We do. I'm very excited to be joined today by Dr. Justin Anderson, Senior Policy Fellow at the National Defense University Center for the Study of Weapons of Mass Destruction. He is an all-around expert on nuclear weapons, deterrence, and arms control issues, but most importantly, He's a big fan of movies with nukes in them, so I'm wanting him to help us delve this really big topic here. Justin, welcome to this podcast. I'm so excited to be here, Tim and James. Thanks for the invite. Upfront disclaimer, everything I say here are my own views, not those of the National Defense University, Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. I'm here just as a fan of the movies, and Tim, I'm here as a fan of this movie. Yeah, this is a great one. So completely randomly, Justin and uh, James actually know each other from grad school uh, over at uh, King's College London. So this podcast is really about bringing people together, uh, just like the Manhattan Project scientists work together to bring about two pieces of, you know, subcritical elements of uranium. Um, yeah, I think that, that fits. That transition works. So uh, we're here to talk about one of the biggest movies of the year that just happens to be about nuclear weapons oppenheimer if you haven't heard about this movie and you're and you're in this uh, nuclear field or listening to this podcast uh wow uh you need to uh read read at least the you know the the variety uh magazine or something but so this re is released in july 2023 directed by christopher nolan who i think is best known for directing insomnia this wild movie with al pacino investigating in us in alaska murders committed by that famous serial killer robin williams right that's the biggest movie that <laughs> James that uh, Christopher Nolan's known for? Uh, yeah, I think that's it. Yeah, he's known for uh, known for insomnia. No, I, I think uh, Christopher Nolan is probably most broadly known for his work on the Batman trilogy, mm. uh, the Dark Knight trilogy, uh, which is I guess there that's about ten or fifteen years ago now. Obviously, other other films under his belt include Inception, 
Dunkirk, Tenet, Interstellar. So he's got a, a kind of a varied filmography. This is his second foray into what I think we could probably describe as historical drama, Dunkirk being his first. So oftentimes he writes his own writes his own scripts and stories for for films like like Inception, for example, uh, Tenet, uh, Interstellar, obviously Dunkirk. That's a that's a true story, um, and the Batman text obviously came from the comic books, but I believe this is his first adaptation of a, of a work of nonfiction. Hmm. Um, so this is kind of an interesting foray, but not necessarily uncharacteristic. I mean, he really likes to blow things up on screen. Um, and I think we'll get into that uh, later in the podcast. Not his first, obviously, World War II movie and not his first nuclear weapon movie. Because if you count whatever that whatever that thing is at the end of Dark Knight Rises that I still can't figure out. Some sort of <laughs> neutron bomb that can be flown by a helicopter and explode, but I don't know what it was, but it apparently was some sort of an atomic thing. Uh, Justin, maybe you can help us out at some point if you know what the hell that was. But um, I still personally cannot believe that we got this movie. Um, the Manhattan Project is a very interesting, complex story. Uh, it's fascinating from all of the angles, like the personalities of the people involved, the science, the engineering challenges, the manufacturing challenges, uh, the state secrets and espionage, spy world. There's world wars and the race between the U.S. and Germany for the bomb. Uh, there's the introduction of the atomic age that we all live in and kind of the impacts that that could have on people and those that it did incredibly affect in Japan, any other places um, that were affected by the nuclear fuel cycle. This is never something I thought would get the Christopher Nolan treatment uh, or this level of hype you know justin do you want to talk a little bit about before we kind of dive into the rest of this like when when this was announced uh, i think it was like late 2021 yeah what did you think as someone who really studies thinks about these things uh on your work time and your personal time uh what, what did you think when you heard that this was going to happen yeah thanks tim so i went through a few stages of emotions i think i can characterize them as being thrilled being surprised and then being quite concerned. And what I mean by that <laughs> is, first of all, I'm, I'm thrilled for someone to take an interest in you know, such a fascinating and complicated historical figure and in the Manhattan uh, Project. Uh, I mean, I work in nuclear issues. Uh, in the past, I've had the opportunity at NDU to teach the WMD in film course, co-teach it, uh, a course uh, that I took over from WMD Girl, from mm -hmm. uh, my colleague, Dr. Natasha Bajma. Uh, so shout out to WMD girl. I, I was just really excited. I mean, you know, I said to you, Tim, this is like the Super Bowl <laughs> for people who like movies and things nuclear. Like, it's amazing to have a director like Christopher Nolan take an interest in this topic that, frankly, many people don't really know a lot about. I'm familiar with Oppenheimer. Clearly, people know about the Manhattan Project. I, I was really excited. Then I was surprised, and the surprise is because this is based on a, a thick tome of a biography, a Pulitzer Prize-winning biography, but it's a, it's a thick tome. It's a complicated topic, you know, physics, theoretical physics, a complicated person, not a hero or anti-hero in mm -hmm. Oppenheimer. It covers a long stretch of history, and it includes so many other figures who are important to the story. So I was surprised this was Nolan's choice that he would, you know, he would choose this movie. And then I was concerned, Tim. And the concern was because you're in the wrong hands. This can go wrong. You've covered it before. Fat Man and Little Boy. Not a great movie. Um, 
it's it could be fumbled in so many ways. It's it's a weighty topic. Again, as I said, there's a lot of variables that would be hard, I think, for a filmmaker to make a a you know coherent narrative out of a complex figure and complicated historical subject. So my concern then turned to you know trepidation as it led up to the movie because I wanted it to be good. I wanted mm-hmm. it to be something people would see and interact with and talk about. And I just, I wasn't sure if he could pull it off. And, and there were a lot of attempts in the past. Like, you know, you mentioned uh, Fat Man, A Little Boy from 1989, and we covered that on, on the podcast, Kate Hewitt and Aaron Connolly. Yeah, great episode, yeah. Uh, great conversation. The movie, you know, it wasn't great, but there were like, like this one, the cast was, was pretty stacked. Uh, there was... Uh, a two-season TV show called Manhattan on WGN that that tried to tried to pull this story apart. The, the first ever version of this was 1947. There was a docudrama uh, that apparently got started because someone in uh, like an uh, someone that was an actor wanted to make some sort of uh, movie script, and their professor, their chemist uh, teacher in, in, in undergrad, happened to be a member of the Manhattan Project. So they're like, yeah, no problem. I'll help you with that. Uh, and that movie's called The Beginning or the End. And it tells, tells a story about the Manhattan Project. Didn't have a lot of the details. And they threw a lot of flourish and other things. But apparently, Major Leslie Grove, who we'll get into his role in the Manhattan Project, uh, he was apparently a consultant on on the project for what would be $150,000 in 2020. So not a bad gig for him. And Oppenheimer also gave his blessing uh, for the movie to take place. But anyways, like they tried 1947, like two years after the Manhattan Project was, was discovered. You know, there were other things in the 80s. There was this uh, a miniseries, I think it's called Oppenheimer, that was with Sam Waterston playing Oppenheimer. And another one called Day One, which was a TV movie from 89 uh, that starred David Strandham. Stratham? I always mispronounce that, but uh, he was playing Oppenheimer um, along with Brian Denny. He is uh, less grub. That was kind of fun. So anyways, these are like, some of them are ranging between low quality and high quality, but nothing like prestige Christopher Nolan. Uh, but it seemed interesting. James, you, you clearly looked a little bit into maybe why Nolan wanted to do this movie after his latest film before this one, which was Tenet, which I've still not seen. Uh, want to, it's on my list, but apparently there's like some direct, like, okay, from here, I want to do this. Yeah, I think if you look at... Dunkirk is probably an outlier, although I'm sure you could you could make the case uh, that it's not. But I, I think that you know, obviously, this this big picture idea of the dangers of technology and our proclivity as human beings and as a society to work towards our own destruction is something I think that all of his films are pretty interested. I mean, Interstellar is literally about this yeah. post almost post apocalyptic world where uh, where we're dealing with uh, sort of kind of rogue forms of technology and then the batman movies are all about that as well um tenet again as as you mentioned is about that so this seems pretty natural in his progression as a filmmaker and examining these issues about how our, our relationship with tech is perhaps going to be part of our <laughs> part of our demise um i think he's quite cynical about it i mean i think mm-hmm. <laughs> i don't i don't think he, he feels that we can actually overcome uh overcome this problem and that it's sort of uh, endemic to our to our, our societies and our, our you know our, our nations and our governments and how we uh, how we operate. So definitely a, a natural transition uh, for for his filmmaking. His politics are interesting. So I, I I won't dive too into this, but I think 
Christopher Nolan's politics are, are pretty obscure. Uh, it's one of the criticisms that's, that's hmm. levied on him and a lot of his films and a lot of his filmmaking. And I would encourage people, you know, one of the things, I, I try to steer clear of a lot of reviews of this um, just because I I find if I read a lot of stuff that I like creeps up in my head when I'm doing a podcast, I'm like, <laughs> wait, is that, is that my idea or someone else's? But, um, you know, I would just go ahead and encourage people to read two, I'll put it this way, The National Review and Jacobin both hate this movie. So um, <laughs> um, it's, it's getting um, it's getting it's getting some interesting political criticism from from both left and right. So I don't know. Take that. I, 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 I won't I won't analyze that too much. But, you know, go and read both those reviews. And then after you've seen the movie, of course, and frame it in that in that lens and see if you can identify what Christopher Nolan's politics are. The, the other question, uh, James, is how do they feel about Barbie? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I I'm sure some of them have opinions on that one for sure. <laughs> um, one of my favorite things about when these kind of prestige, you know, nuke things happen, uh, the last time this happened was Chernobyl, where the entire non-proliferation nuclear community on many, many, many different size aspects of that all kind of come together and say, all right, well, this is the big national moment at the time. Let's talk about this. What are, what are people learning from seeing these things, uh, whether it's people who are in the field like us and we have our own thoughts and opinions and rants that we want to go on based on what we see is accurate or not, or, oh, cool, that's fun to see on, on the TV. Uh, or is it uh, people who have nothing you know, in terms of their background, but they still live in the world where nuclear weapons exist and what are they taking away from that that they might learn and want to act upon or just treat like it's this, uh, the thing you see on TV. It's the atomic bomb that whatever that thing was that Batman dealt with. And um, if Batman can deal with it, we're probably fine. I, we're always curious to see what people's reactions to these are. And there are a lot of think pieces on this. There are a lot of think pieces about Chernobyl. Um, there were a lot of think pieces about Game of Thrones when that came out because people like myself and a few others said that nuclear weapons are, are like dragons or I guess dragons are like, <laughs> like nuclear weapons. So we got into debates about that. Um, and it's natural, you know, you want people to care about the subject matter that you uh, are working on, because sometimes in nuclear weapons, as Justin mentioned, it's kind of hard to get people to care. Uh, this is not the Cold War, where people were doing duck and trevor drills. It's a thing where this is, it kind of comes up sometimes, and people are worried about it, and then it goes away, because there's a lot to be concerned about uh, these days. So I think it was really fascinating when um, people like, uh, or great outlets like the, the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, uh, they had a huge issue in July uh, for their magazine and had a lot of stories and interviews with people, and one of which was a long extended article uh, interview with uh, Christopher Nolan. He talks a little bit about kind of why he did this, in addition to everything James mentioned. You know, he mentions that uh, he grew up in the United Kingdom. He was involved with things like, or at least was around for the campaign for nuclear disarmament, CND. Uh, he was seesaw protests by RAF bases in the UK, and he was worried about Russia. Uh, and nuclear war and all of that stuff. And the United Kingdom's not very big. It doesn't take that many weapons to destroy pretty much the entire country, you know, particularly England. And then with Russia, Russia's invasion of Ukraine over the last two years or so uh, has really brought those anxieties into focus for Nolan. And I think the my favorite part of this is one of the reasons why we got this movie is because Robert Pattinson himself apparently gave as a farewell gift on the closing of Tenet, he gave him a bunch of Oppenheimer speeches. And it's like, check this out. You were talking about all these themes. What about this? And he gave him all of these things. And that inspired Nolan to look further at this subject matter and, and get the book that we, you know, all know that this is like really based off of this 2005 biography called American Prometheus, The Triumph and Tragedy of J. Robert Oppenheimer. Uh, and this is by Kybert and Martin Sherwin. 
And this was a book that they took like 20 years to write, left no stone unturned in terms of interviews and documents and news reports. And I, I think if you impress these guys, uh, and I'm sure they like the extra bit of book sales that they've been getting, um, but I'm sure they themselves uh, are, are incredibly impressed. They say that they are basically speechless and stunned, still emotionally recovering from having seen the movie. And they hope, like Nolan, maybe there's not a message that you would take away from this that, like, Nolan says this about nukes, but it's the story. And, and once that debate, national debate about this, so I, I'm curious to see where we're going to, you know, what's going to come out of this. We're going to talk about that during the podcast here, uh, but there's quite a lot to cover. So I think we should probably start to move into the discussion about the plot and everything and, and cover things like the reactions to people's um, seeing this within the community and outside. But as uh, we talked a little bit earlier, it made 80 million bucks its first opening weekend. It's 94% on Rotten Tomatoes. At this point, people are are really, really enjoying it. And I was going to say, too, we were going to talk about, like, all of the people that are in this movie with the cast list, but I think that might be its own podcast, given there's, like, 40 or yeah. stacked great actors. Yeah. But maybe, James, just let us know the ones we need to absolutely know. And I won't we'll kind of pop in and out. When when we say someone's name, uh, and like a the real-life person, I'll say what amazing actor that Nolan was able to get for these parts. Yeah, I think there's four actors that you need to know going in you do you need to know Cillian murphy uh who plays the titular j robert oppenheimer and we talked about his, his experience with building giant weapons of mass destruction this is the second time that Cillian murphy has been featured on this podcast playing a nuclear physicist <laughs> um so uh we, we discussed his movie sunshine a couple of not his movie but the movies he stars in sunshine a couple of weeks ago so uh he played j robert kappa or not robert kappa yeah. in that, i think and, and now, now it's j robert oppenheimer um uh, so you need to know Cillian Murphy, uh, and he is one of the scientists. There's a whole bunch of other scientists that uh, we'll probably cover as we discuss the plot. The military and government, well, Robert Downey Jr., um, everyone knows him as probably Iron Man, I guess, it's, it's, <laughs> at this point. Um, he plays uh, Louis Strauss, uh, and then we have Matt Damon as uh, Leslie Groves, who we're introduced to, I believe, initially as a colonel and then he becomes a general mm -hmm. within within like a scene he's, he's sort of promoted and then there are some 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 family characters uh most notably uh, emily blunt plays kitty oppenheimer who is um oppenheimer's uh wife for most of most of the film and uh we'll i guess we'll get into later on how how some of the uh some female characters are portrayed in these movies and lots of nolan movies um it's complicated but those are probably the four that you need to know the most about um, going in. Timber, Justin, I don't know if you think yeah. anyone else is worth noting up top here. This is yeah. great because there's, uh, you, you can drown in the amount of people that are in this movie if you want, if you go to Wikipedia and look at the cast list. This has been like 30 minutes of intro. Well, we've been thinking about this movie for like two years. So, uh, <laughs> sorry everybody, you know, if you're if you're looking for a short episode on Oppenheimer, yeah, there's plenty of podcasts out there, but not this one. We're getting super critical about it. And as we do, there are two big questions I think we should consider as we're looking through the plot and the themes. Um, the first of which is, what did this movie choose to focus on when it tried to delve into this very large story? And what did they exclude that might add to the viewer's experience if they want to add a little bit of extra context uh, to this? Because uh, that's been a lot of the d debate of, within the nuclear community is what was not included uh, in, in the film. Maybe that's we'll talk about whether that's fair or not. Uh, and, and secondly... What will people take away from this movie about the dawn and, you know, day where we're currently living of the of the nuclear age? 
do people watch this movie and go, oh, wow, nuclear weapons are dangerous. Maybe we should do something about that. Or do they think, yikes, that was pretty scary, uh, but glad we figured out that problem because the world has not caught on fire yet. What is the reactions to this? We're not going to be able to solve all of that, but I definitely think we have some three bright minds here to, to, to contribute to this conversation. This is a national emergency. Detonator's charged. We're in a race against the Nazis. And I know what it means. If the Nazis have a bomb. They have a 12-month head start. 18. How could you possibly know that? We've got one hope. All America's industrial might and scientific innovation connected here. Secret laboratory. Keep everyone there until it's done. Let's go recruit some scientists. Build a town, build it fast. We don't let scientists bring their families, we'll never get the best. Why would we go to the middle of nowhere for who knows how long? Why? Why? How about because this is the most important thing to ever happen in the history of the world? You're the great improviser, but this... you can't do in your head. Are we saying there's a chance that when we push that button, we destroy the world? Chances are near zero. Near zero. What do you want from theory alone? Zero would be nice. The world will remember this day. Our work here will ensure a peace mankind has never seen. Until somebody builds a bigger one. You are the man who gave them the power to destroy themselves. And the world is not prepared. to know what's next. Two, what's next? One. So let's get things started. Do I have to say it? Spoiler warning. Uh, if you haven't seen this movie, uh, we're going to basically run through the plot of this. Um, sorry, Nolan. Sorry, uh, Murphy. Um, sorry, everybody. But uh, we're going to get into the context of this and kind of walk through. You know, we're not going to be able to do as well, you know, painting a picture in your mind of what this is. I definitely recommend this as a movie, even if you don't enjoy it, what you hear here. Uh, visually and I would say like what's the word like audio wise like just listening and feeling sound design of this movie you gotta see this in the big screen yeah the, the speakers flex you feel it uh, you you will you will definitely feel it especially at, at key points of time uh, and if you put your uh, audio on your headphones right now to full bass you'll you'll hear our, our gravelly voices uh, maybe trying to replicate a little bit of that <laughs> So we start with a big quote in front of a giant fireball. So the movie gets you right and started. Prometheus stole the fire from the gods and gave it to man. For this, he was chained to a rock 
and tortured for eternity. All right. So this is not yep. Barbie. This is the tone. <laughs> uh, I thought that was a, a pretty great way of starting uh, in only a way that Nolan can. James Neal, Nolan likes to do other stuff. He has kind of like a, a variety of, you know, little tricks. Like if you're watching a J.J. Abrams movie, you're going to get a lens flare. Uh, if you're watching uh, a Steven Spielberg movie, there's going to be a young child looking with awe at the camera screen. What do you get when you get with a Nolan movie? You get screwing with time. Mm-hmm. You know, if you go to his last one, Tenet, it's all about time moving forward, time moving backward. Um, if you look at Interstellar, it goes into this sort of whole idea about quantum mechanics and, and how a minute here can be three years in another dimension because black holes warp how time works. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and this is his second black hole movie, I guess, too. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, the Batman movies actually, he, he keeps it kind of kind of normal. As of, But if, even in Dunkirk, we have different timelines going on all, all at once. So he loves to use that as a, as a, a mechanism this is a really big thing for him. It's probably his favorite thing to do is to screw with timelines. And, um, you know, if you were if you hadn't seen any Christopher Nolan movies before, which actually I, I think probably a lot of people, maybe, maybe they haven't. I mean, this, this could be a lot of the first, first Nolan movie for a lot of people. Um, I feel like if I was walking into this without that's, you know, that background, or at least having seen one other, it was mm-hmm. like a little disorienting. I think he does it to disorient the audience to a certain extent, but also, I think it just makes things maybe a little more fun for him. He doesn't seem like a director who wants to tell a A B C biography. Um, I think to him that would probably be a little bit of a boring exercise. Like, you know, Oppenheimer starts at Cambridge and ends <laughs> where where he where we'll get to. You know, um, this is what he does. So this is to be expected in an old movie. For the most part, I think it I think it works well um, yeah. in in this particular uh, this particular film. Uh, Justin, what are the this is like? There's like two big framing devices for for this movie. There's like a hearing and a hearing. Uh, what what are the stuff that are essentially allowing us to understand what James has said of like there's there's different timelines and other kind of stuff, but it's largely focused around these two, you know, dynamic and very un, in many ways like opposed forces. Yeah, it's really it, it's it is of course focused on Oppenheimer, but uh, there's an interesting device at the very beginning of the movie, and I, I have to give you credit, Tim. I think you figured it out. I was just a little bit puzzled by it, which is at the very start of the movie, you see Oppenheimer. This is right after the uh, Prometheus um, opening you described earlier. You see Oppenheimer, and then you see a one-dot fission. I was like, that's kind of interesting. I'm not really sure whether that is referencing. And then it flips to uh, Louis uh, Strauss, as he preferred to be <laughs> called, apparently. And it's it's two dot fusion, and like fission fusion. Okay, obviously mm-hmm. terms you know, referring to uh, nuclear science. And then I thought maybe that was going to be a way to do chapters, or this was a device we would see throughout the movie. It doesn't appear again. Mm-hmm. So I admit for a little while I was puzzled, fission, fusion, and, and I think, Tim, you, sh- you should offer uh, your explanation, which I think is a compelling one. But I'll just also note that uh, the movie also uses color in black and white. Right. And this is a device that Nolan uses to try to help cue the viewer to where you are in time. Is this, uh, you know, past or memory? 
or is this the present for the character that is? So it is a way he tries to cue people on on time. And I, I think just the last thing I'll say, because you do, I think, have the right fission fusion ex explanation, is I'll just note, it is interesting, given what James said about the way Nolan is fascinated by time and things are moving forward and backward and it's intercutting things. I think one of the things that drew him to Oppenheimer is... You noted, Tim, the uh, the trial, and effectively it's it's not a trial, but it is a trial yeah. <laughs> where Oppenheimer's going through a review of his security clearance, but it really feels like the prosecution of J. Robert Oppenheimer. And then you also have Strauss, who has been nominated for Commerce Secretary by Eisenhower, and what is supposed to be a slam dunk <laughs> nomination process he ends up getting himself and his uh, past and especially his treatment of Oppenheimer cross-examined. So that's a, a key part of the third part of the movie. But this for this time and how it moves both forward and backward, I just know, I think no one in part is drawn to the story because Oppenheimer at the hearing, you can't separate what's happening there from all these choices he's made earlier on, right, which is how you can stitch some things together, a number of choices, some of them poor personal choices, but then also including how Oppenheimer feels about the H-bomb. Uh, those are kind of brought together, but this is all stuff that has happened over the course of his career as a physicist and the leader of the Manhattan Project. So that's being, you know, it's cutting backward and backwards and forwards, and then there's also a key conversation with Albert Einstein. Maybe we can unpack more later. But he does the thing, which I, I now feel he does in every movie, except I think this is recency bias, but where you see a key conversation and you like see the characters meet, but you don't hear what they say. Hmm. You see somebody respond to it, but you still don't know what the heck they talked about. And then finally, at the very end, you give the actual conversation which kind of unlocks everything, even the conversation happens sort of in the middle of his timeline. So it's a way that he plays with time, which is you know fascinating, it is his trope, but it ends up working in Oppenheimer because Oppenheimer and, and so many of the themes of this movie, you can't escape both the importance of the past to what happens with Oppenheimer and Trinity and the bomb, and then what does that mean for the future? which I you know has profound meanings uh, for for uh, for both the future of Oppenheimer's timeline and of course the future in our timeline today. So I think it it ends up working and it's why I'm glad Nolan, even for some of his idiosyncrasies, was the filmmaker to make this story because I think it works really well. Yeah, I fully, fully agree. And I, I think the the only thing I'll, I'll clarify that I think was because I, I was confused at first and I thought, Maybe people that would be watching this would, uh, for the without the background that we all have, the black and white scenes are actually probably the furthest in the timeline, more or less. Not the absolute furthest because we see a few things that take place uh, with LBJ as president and everything, but it definitely confuses you when you realize, oh, what's going on the timeline. Uh, but they do their best. I think we'll, we eventually pick it up as we go through. But yeah, the framing device of uh, Oppenheimer's security clearance is up. In April 1954, uh, so they're seeing whether they're going to renew it, and then this cabinet uh, testimony in front of Senate in 1959. Fascinating, fascinating way that they they kind of managed this. 
So, and I, I will talk a little about what I think the fission fusion stuff means, but I want to save that all at the end because otherwise it'll just sound like I'm uh, I'm ranting and raving into a uh, and sound like a crazy person uh, before we get to it. You, you're um, not. I will get to. I will. Yeah. No, I, I mean you're not. You're not. You're not ranting and raving. It'll come. It'll come to this. I'm sure. <laughs> I, I'm confused. I thought that was the purpose of podcasting. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. And that's how I got it started. You know, this is why it's so confusing to talk about this movie because of how much they jump around. You mentioned the framing device, uh, and we, it's important to talk about. It. It's like so. Strauss hates Oppenheimer. That's the other thing that we learn. <laughs> he, he feels like this guy is uh, thinks that Strauss is dumb. He's not a scientist, uh, and Oppenheimer this is kind of his thing. He he's kind of mean to people that he doesn't consider geniuses, and that's really everybody but Albert Einstein and Niels Bohr. He just considers everybody else, uh, you know, a dummy. Uh, so he's mean to people like this, but Strauss is also like taking some stuff on on himself. Like he thinks, "Oh, I'm going to meet this celebrity. I'm going to offer him a position at Princeton in the Institute for Advanced Studies. It's like the biggest, you know, most prestigious science uh, position you could have." And Oppenheimer's like, "Man, eh, maybe, you know. Oh, I get to have this fancy dream house, like a Barbie dream house that I can live on campus and walk to <laughs> and walk to work. Um, yeah, we'll see if I accept it. Oh, you're." Strauss is like, well, if you look, Albert Einstein feeds some ducks at this pond. Don't you want to go? I can introduce him to you. And he's like, uh, yeah, we're we're on speed dial together. We, you know, we're we're, we're buddies. <laughs> uh, and so there's this fascinating, like, little back and forth there. Um, you think at one point they might bond over their kind of common Jewish heritage, and and essentially self-taught individuals, but no, that Strauss basically feels like Einstein. At one point, after it, what you just mentioned, this scene of Einstein and, and Oppenheimer talking off in the distance, and then when Strauss comes up to say hello, Einstein like blanks him, like doesn't even look at him, and Strauss is like, "This guy's turning Einstein against me." So from that point and some other stuff, essentially assumed everything was awful, and, and Strauss was not a guy. Strauss was not a guy you would want to make enemies. Like what I mean, us just pronouncing his name. If he was still around, we should, you know, watch our backs. There's. That's so critical, I think, for the story um, in order to be able to kind of tell the kind of broader picture of the person who, the father of the atomic bomb. Uh, so the main framing device we've mentioned is the movie starts with Oppenheimer in this very claustrophobic room with three judges, essentially, you know, hearing officials to a panel of three with a, a chairman in the middle. There's people on the one side that are the prosecution representing the university and the Atomic Energy Commission about whether Oppenheimer should get to continue his Q clearance, the highest level uh, of, of clearances that potentially allows him to be an advisor for the, the U.S. government and the bomb projects. Uh, and then on his side, he's got some defense people that are, that are supporting him. And you see him straight faced, eyes to camera, and you get the piercing blue eyes. I don't know what Cillian Murphy's actual eyes are, but that's one of the things people always talked about Oppenheimer was his eyes, like basically as light blue as you can get. And, you know, I, I will say this, he looks the part, essential casting for so many of these people. And you see him staring there and he's like, if you want to know my views on any of these things you're accusing me of, this derogatory information, let me just tell you my life story. And it's a great framing device for basically telling through flashbacks and other things, his story. Uh, and that's where we start to get early Oppenheimer, a 22-year-old homesick kid who's wicked smart and studying physics, practical physics, though, in, in the United Kingdom. And he hates it, right? He doesn't seem to be enjoying too much being in the lab, right? No, he's not He's not a fan of the lab. Um, you sort of see him, yeah, shivering in this this 
Dickensian <laughs> dorm room, um, for lack of a better word. As the, as, it brings back fond memories of England, right? I, I, I was, I was yeah. about to say, James, you know, I, I have to admit, I, I can't identify hardly at all with Oppenheimer and England otherwise, but him shivering in a uh, you know tiny room where the windows you know provide no no comfort, uh, no shielding against the pouring rain and just there's there's an English kind of cold that's I think hard to understand <laughs> if you haven't been there where it's like the winter months cold and wet and dark all the time. It's why you got to retire to the pub. That's probably Oppenheimer's <laughs> problem. He should be at the pub, not just brooding in his room over quantum physics or or whatever it was. So yeah, absolutely, James. I was I was right. I was right back there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the the windows don't shut. They're single paned. It's just uh, it's, <laughs> um, you, you kind of you kind of realize that he's not, or he realizes that he's not. Uh, he's not a lab guy. He's a he's a he's a theory guy. He dreams and like has waking nightmares of something in the quantum realm sorry wrong movie like he has a dream of something in the you know within within atoms and they visualize this i think in a really fascinating way yeah they suggest that he has some kind of almost like natural predilection to like understanding these things in a way that most people don't but he's not like your you know he's not your like star student he's not really able to live up to the academic expectations that they have they have for him he's he's bumbling in the lab you see him with his professor uh and he's like knocking over vials and test yep. tubes and what would be later described as like potions um, <laughs> in this in the in the institution and uh you know he, he sort of is frankly like bullied and mocked by his professor into not being able to attend this lecture that he really wants to attend and having to like clean up the lab for everyone and then <laughs> what is he he's not a, he's not an enemy to make either apparently right so what does he do he decides that he will uh take a syringe fill it with cyanide and injected into an apple that's left on the professor's desk that's that and then he makes his way over to the, to the <laughs> lecture hall um and um who does he hear from at the, at the lecture hall yeah i mean but he wanted to because he wanted to go see niels bohr you know one of the, the kind of premier uh physicists and theoretical physicists but I, I, so the story with Appenheimer poisoning his teacher it's in a lot of biographies some people dispute whether it, it happened it's not something i guess that he talked about but because he did get in trouble for it though uh, so in, in the movie, he wakes up early and like tries to go to grab it, and like Neil Bohr is almost is there, and, and he's gonna try to eat it, and he takes it away. Uh, Neil Bohr plays brilliantly by, uh, I think that's Kenneth Branagh, right? Yes, yeah, Kenneth Branagh. Yeah. So in, in real life, he doesn't st- take the apple. Apparently, they they noticed <laughs> that he did it, or they found out somehow, and he was almost getting get kicked out of school or go to jail, as you would imagine. Uh, but Oppenheimer's. Uh, father, who was uh, a self-made, very rich individual, got the school to not press charges, and Oppenheimer had to go undergo therapy. So it wasn't like he saved the day and no one noticed. He got in trouble for it, and I believe it was part of his like record. Uh, things that the FBI, I'm sure, um, if it was a real story, put on put on his 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 notes. But he gets to meet Niels Bohr, right? And he does discover, okay, not the place for me. I need to go to Germany, and I need to go study um, under some other kind of big famous physicists and stuff that are more theoretical focused. And he goes there on a train. He meets some friends. Uh, he meets another person who eventually joins the Manhattan Project, uh, Robbie, who's another famous uh, physicist. And then he meets another one of these main prominent figures in German uh, Germany's physics world. Werner Heisenberg. I thought that was a great scene in one of many lectures. Uh, so as a professor, did you enjoy the fact that the, such a prominence was placed 
on lectures and the value of a lecture. If you listen, look at the impact of the world you can have. Thanks, Tim. I mean, it's catnip to anyone who's been in a classroom to show, you know, scenes of rapt students, like hanging on every word of this, uh, you know, quantum physicist. Maybe that's one of the most fictionalized parts of the movie. <laughs> I, I don't know. But uh, yeah, I, have, you know, I absolutely enjoyed it. I mean, I think that they do a good job in, and this was just one of many parts of the story that I wondered, you know, could they do this, which is to portray in a way that is ultimately compelling the intellectual ferment that was going on yeah. in this field. And, you know, really it's, it's guys talking in rooms, sometimes professors to each other or, or to, you know, students but it's, it manages to convey to you the sense of propulsive excitement. This is a new field. All these amazing discoveries are being made. There are people who ultimately, you know, in retrospect, they're titans of the field. And it's pretty exciting. I mean, hopefully uh, people listening to this podcast, I'm sure all three of us here, you know, there are days where school was not great. There are those days, you know, when you were going to the most exciting lecture from the like most compelling, you know, lecturer, professor or whatever. And just that excitement, I think they do capture some of it. And that's really important, not just to help explain Oppenheimer, but you need that propulsive force to get to that point when there's a realization, wait a minute, this amazing field of scientific discovery and endeavor, we uh, may have just unlocked the secret to an incredibly powerful weapon. Yeah. And what does that mean? So I, I thought they did that well. I think that's what Christopher Nolan does better than anyone else. I mean, we're talking about him dramatizing the disagreement between different like academic schools of thought <laughs> 100 years ago in Europe. And it's like, and he makes that right. feel like Indiana Jones. Yeah, and, yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> and that's to me, that's just like amazing movie making because it's this thing that's so dense and so so abstract. And how can you represent this in like twenty minutes of, of film? And it's just like you're just captivated. But the whole the whole time, it's like, yeah. Yep. Now he's now he's gaining this knowledge from in in Holland, and now he's he's moving <laughs> like he's he's just he's just he's constantly moving. He's constantly learning. He's constantly having these conversations, like Justin was saying, these conversations in the rooms. This whole movie is conversations in rooms but none of that feels like way down or stodgy it feels like captivating and propulsive and the entire movie moves at this pace and, and um you know you didn't see that other indiana jones trope when he shakes Werner heisenberg's hand uh you see him like a slowly blink and it says i love you in german <laughs> <laughs> on his eyelids uh love that indiana jones scene so no this is great and i totally totally agree like this is a fascinating like look at, at history because you know, the internet didn't exist. If you wanted to talk to someone about physics, you had to get on a train or a boat or a plane and go to the places where these individuals were at. And once people started to publish and share information, there was not a world war yet at that particular point. We were in the middle between some of those. People were publishing it. And like, there was an amazing scientific collaboration. And you get a sense from Oppenheimer, you start to understand that, particularly as a theoretical guy, 
Like he wants to talk to everybody. He wants to learn from everyone. He doesn't really care about your politics. What are you contributing to science and the advancement of this? And how can he have a role to play uh, in the advancement of that? This is just all breaking science here. And it also was fascinating point in time because there was some of this in science fiction. There were understandings that theoretically you could maybe split the atom. There is something holding atoms together. And if you break them, energy could be released and you can harness that. And even people like H.G. Wells was writing stories about this and how you could maybe use this for both weapons and for energy and how could it change the world. But it was still, again, theoretical until uh, there were some major advances. Like when, when you know, an, an Italian named Fermi uh, was able to break that experiment. And people before that, like Leo Szilard, was, was talking about being able to do this uh, theoretically. And, and Oppenheimer says, all right, I want to talk about this stuff, and I want America to be a player in this. And they're not a quantum theory physics uh, department. So he goes back to Berkeley, he goes to Caltech, and essentially creates this field that he thinks is important. Um, and he even gets to the point where he's teaching and working with with students and getting articles published on black holes and other stuff but of course his articles as soon as he gets it published not a great day for him getting you know his rollout of his science because it's the same day that hitler invaded poland world war ii now is the center stage for all of this and now that they discover that fission is possible it sets off this race immediately oppenheimer's on it in the movie you know if you can do this you can build a bomb who's going to get it first United States uh, and its allies or Nazi Germany really drives the rest of this movie, him and the other uh, characters that are there. Uh, but it's not just his purpose in this movie is not just to be a scientist and build bombs. We learn another side of Oppenheimer that is very somewhat clouded by history and controversy, but we get to meet a little bit of his personal life, his political leanings and things like this. What does the movie start to show us about that side of his uh, background? His social circle is, well, not a communist himself, I guess, by his own declaration. His social circle is almost entirely communist. <laughs> um, so uh, I, I think that's, that's probably how the movie frames it, right? Um, he's not a member, but he's... Uh, a traveler. He, he's he's a fellow traveler, right? Yeah. Um, so he, he attends a lot of fancy Berkeley parties, kind of this like champagne socialism, I think you, you, you know, kind of think of from this time, like a lot of American academics who are card-carrying members of the Communist Party, but also have, like, cushy academic appointments to, you know, places places like Berkeley. There's, I would say, a good deal of way pre-1960s sexual freedom um, also uh, on display here. Um, perhaps not openly, but, you know, if you dig, like, an inch down, that seems to be sort of something everyone's down to do <laughs> one way or another. Um, so, yeah, this is where we're introduced to Gene Tatlock, played by... Uh, uh, Florence Pugh. Florence Pugh, yes, <laughs> played by Florence Pugh, um, and they have sort of a, a tryst, I guess, for lack of a better word, that that develops um, on uh, on that first evening. He meets uh, he meets uh, Hakon Chevalier along with Jean Tatlock, um, both card carrying members of the Communist Party. Um, a relationship develops between Oppenheimer and Jean, um, obviously built on you know mutual politics, um, but you know, this, this fine line, I guess, between, or, or broad line, yeah. uh, depending on who you ask, uh, about joining or not joining the Communist Party. They do have a, a tryst over Sanskrit, <laughs> uh, which is um, 
other people have written about this. I don't think we'll get into it in this in this episode, but um, this is this is like the only Christopher Nolan movie with nudity, I guess. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so <laughs> out of nowhere, sometimes, yeah, yeah, kind of out of nowhere. So this is uh, another um, element of one of you know a, a new element in his filmmaking that he's exploring, in addition to. Um, high explosives she introduces him i guess maybe accidentally because i don't believe she also reads sanskrit but she pulls out the the hindu bible and and opens it to a page and says read me this thing and that's where he first uh says in the movie uh, one of the lines he's famous in popular culture for i remembered the line from the hindu scripture the bhagavad-gita vishnu is trying to persuade the prince that he should do his duty and to impress him takes on his multi-armed form and says now i am become death the destroyer of worlds i suppose we all thought that one way or another now i have become death the destroyer of worlds right the movie says introduces us to to that concept and also to other things like, you know, Oppenheimer, he's not a member, as you said, of the Communist Party of America, but he uses them to donate money to refugees and freedom fighters in Spain that are uh, fighting for freedom in a fascist state. And it's important to know, you know, he probably thought that was perfectly fine, not being a member, like, trying to divide that line. Clearly, it doesn't work. And also, he tries to unionize some of the, the radiation lab and other people at, at Caltech and tries to get that. And I believe that's when the FBI first starts to notice him, his uh, politics, and starts the uh, very foreshadowing of, of, a, of a case book um, on Oppenheimer. One other thing to, to note, and I think they did a, a good job with, it's clearly communicated to you as important, but you know it's, it's interspersed and intercut through some uh, different conversations with different people, which is, Oppenheimer is a is a Jewish American physicist. Although he is he and his family uh, were secular uh, Jews, a critical part of who they were and their identity, and especially what that meant for other people, it's a very important part to who Oppenheimer is. Also, is critical subtext to why he then is so determined to become a part of this big scientific project, doesn't yet have a name and it's still somewhat secret, but all the scientists are talking to each other, which he believes is going to be important to defeating Nazi Germany. Right. And so it's also noted that yes, he donates to you know, various leftist causes, uh, but also he's donating money to help Jews get out of Germany, get out of uh, you know Germany and Eastern Europe because the persecutions already happened, of course, is already happening well before the outbreak of World War II. And this is another key part of the story to both Oppenheimer and I think his motivations and and why he's interested in the bomb. And I'll just note another thing though, which is why he's a complicated figure, but I, I feel like the film does this well. I mean, this is also his opportunity, right? For the limelight. Right. This is like, a quick recognition, hey, our field, which is important, but frankly, somewhat obscure and hard to understand. Like we could be center stage for this titanic conflict, maybe even important to how the conflict ends. And part of it's out of a sense of duty as an American, as a Jewish American, but also, man, he's interested in that celebrity. He wants to stride onto center stage of human history 
and and play a role. So I think they managed to do all those the things that uh, you know you and James were referencing, but those two, which is kind of key ingredients in the mix of who is J. Robin Oppenheimer, which I will say once the cake is baked, you still don't exactly know. <laughs> yeah. But they put all those ingredients together, uh, I think, in the sort of first third or, or so of the movie in, in a way that I thought was done well. It's this ice cream cake, but also with a lot of uh, fondant on it. That doesn't make any sense. Wait, <laughs> there's, a, there's hot sauce. There's a hot like, sauce in the middle. What's happening? <laughs> I, would, I would also say, just to add quickly to what Justin said, it's, it's like, also, he's not after money. Because he's already he's already independently wealthy, and I think this is this goes back to what we were talking about earlier with when um, Straws is trying to entice him, and it's like yeah. he tries to entice he tries to entice him first with trappings of this house and this appointment and the commute. Then he tries to imp- impress him with you know prestige, you know, this what you'll be able to do, and blah, blah blah. And then he tries to impress him with introducing him to Albert Einstein, and it doesn't. He's like, well, I already. So it's like he. All and all these things are sort of built over the court. I mean, he starts he starts wealthy and he he dies. I think presumably wealthy as well, but we don't see his death. But I mean, I'm just saying that like I think the fact that he's not motivated by necessarily like material wealth gain is is important to remember at this point too, because um, he's coming to the table with a lot of like family money, which I think you know is uh, kind of a important just just important to remember as he's like yeah making 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 decisions he wants a role his 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 currency is influence essentially and the ability to advance science and as justin mentioned the ability to have an impact on on the war and his friends know this like so ernest lawrence who's the head of the radiation lab at, at berkeley they're they're buddies so well played by josh hartnett forget that it's josh hartnett in this movie and he's so good in this uh he says dude if you want to be part of this project that you know what it is you got to cool it with the the communist stuff. You got to stop trying to organize. You have to be a team player. And I think, you know, Opie, as people, his friends, you know, call him, he very quickly realizes, you're right. I have to stop this. Even if I cared about these causes, I'll find another way to deal with it. I need to. If I want to be involved in this, I got to I gotta play the part of the, the good teammate. And fortunately, he stops that stuff from his perspective and gets introduced uh, to another big player, the Matt Damon character general leslie grove and he comes in he's the guy famous at this point for building the pentagon um the place that uh you know we all know will be the fun target of any sort of incoming uh nuclear attack beautiful building near many of our homes here but it he built it uh he was a military leader or on the on the battlefront for a while but it's kind of annoying that he has to be spending this time doing these projects. And he didn't really even believe in the atomic bomb project and whether it was going to be a thing uh, for a long time that would even work, but he got tasked with it and he'll go ahead and do it. And he wants Oppenheimer to join, even though he doesn't really fit the mold. Oppenheimer has never run anything other than his small physics department. He's never run like a large administrative project like the Pentagon or things like this. But he he knows that he's the kind of guy who can push the boundaries of science. And he's well-respected in the field and might be able to help recruit people to the cause. But he still knows about Oppie's background. So he grills them on these things. And ultimately, Oppenheimer convinces him uh, that he should be involved. He mentions he knows all the major players in Germany, like uh, Heisenberg. And he knows that the United States is two years behind. And he essentially plays out two things. One, here's how you do it. You put the whole manufacturing capability of the United States together for this effort. You build 
plutonium here, uranium here. Uh, you do all of these various components, and then you place all of this together in the middle, in the middle of nowhere, and ultimately it's in New Mexico, his uh, place that he loves so much uh, to go around, and you get scientists from around the world, you bring them there, you keep them isolated, and that prevents the messages from getting out instead of compartmentalizing people. And the other kind of main thing that he says is, uh, we'll be able to do it because we will bring people together, and we don't care what their backgrounds are. Maybe they're communists, maybe they're Jewish. We don't care, because we are also America. Those aren't things that concern us. It's going to be a problem for Hitler in Germany. He thinks this is Jewish science, which is literally quotes he would refer to about physics and quantum mechanics and, and things like this, and he was going to, in a lot of those major scientists like Niels Bohr and Albert Einstein, left and fled um, Europe at that particular time. So that's going to be their in to catch up uh, over those two years. In this exchange, I'm going to butcher the joke, but there's a great joke about, like, finding a humble physicist. <laughs> I'll let you know when I see one. <laughs> I'll let you know when I see one. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> I think this movie has, like, a couple... I mean, I, you guys would know more better than I would about, like, you know, the arrogance of physicists, I guess. I don't, I don't work with any of them. Um, but, um, or any of them, uh, but I thought that was funny. And then the conceit in this that like the best physicists are bad at math, um, <laughs> I thought was really funny. It's like, well, yeah, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it's a fun exchange. And, it, and I think Matt Damon plays um, Les Grove. He doesn't really fully, maybe like from the neck up kind of looks like Grove. The rest of it, he's still Matt Damon and he's <laughs> a fairly, you know, good looking dude. I, then we get what I always love in, in a good movie that involves uh, a team. We get a montage of people getting assembled here. Getting the team together. <laughs> getting a team together. I'm in. Um, so he goes around convincing people, go with us. You know, we'll be in the middle of uh, New Mexico. Can't really tell you what the project is, but uh, you'll definitely, you know, want to be involved in it. I, don't, I thought those scenes in the movie were fantastic, particularly one where Oppenheimer was trying to convince this one guy to join. He's like, why would I even do that? Why Why would I be involved? And then out of nowhere, Les Grove's like, because it's the biggest goddamn most important thing that's ever happened in the history of everything. Why wouldn't you be involved? I love that, because that, that energy is bringing Les Grove uh, to, the, to the forefront. Uh, and here's a quote from Oppenheimer that I think is always fascinating. I, I mentioned this quote in the last movie we covered on Manhattan Project, the last podcast we did on Manhattan Project uh, with Batman and Little Boy, but it's just a great line. It's I saw Oppenheimer was talking about how he would recruit people and the challenges for that to come to. Essentially, I want you to talk, Justin, about Los Alamos because you've actually been there, and you can talk a little bit about what sure. what it's like nowadays. But here's what Oppenheimer said. The prospect of coming to Los Alamos aroused great mis misgivings. It was to be a military post. Men were asked to sign up for more or less for the duration. Restrictions on travel and the freedoms of families to move about would be severe. The notion of disappearing into the New Mexico desert for an indeterminate period of time and under quasi-military auspices uh, disturbed great number of many good scientists. But there was another side to it. Almost everyone knew that if you were, if it was completely successful and rapidly enough, it might determine the outcome of the war. This sense of excitement, of devotion, and of patriotism in the end prevailed. But it, it's still the, the case of, all right, we got to go to Los Alamos, uh, which, you know, didn't really exist at that point as the city that eventually became. What's it like nowadays? Yeah, thanks, Tim. Now, I am lucky and fortunate enough to have been to Los Alamos uh, for work. And you, in as much as it's obviously built up more than starting from just a boys' school, uh, which was purchased uh, by the uh, by by the army and uh, all the kids sent home, and they started to build the town and lab of Los Alamos. So there was nothing there. But even today, it's off away, um, you know, from most other things. So you drive there, you wind your way up 
up the mesa around canyons you're going through desert um it's a beautiful starkly beautiful landscape but there's nothing around and then you get up to you know up to kind of a plateau and now there is a entire sort of small town and of course the lab the national nuclear lab of los alamos a huge lab complex but it includes a high school uh, their mascots, the Hilltoppers. <laughs> uh, in New Mexico, you don't want to be racing a Hilltopper in track and field because at that higher elevation, mm. they're they're going to beat you. And so it is um, really just an amazing place uh, to to you know take in a beautiful sunset. But even today, it is kind of off on its own. So it is kind of crazy to imagine. And you see the scene in the movie. Basically, we'll build it here, and there's nothing. <laughs> And they, they start to build uh, build it up. I, I think just one other thing, though, which is relevant to Los Alamos, and as you see it kind of coming up and everything is unfinished wood and it's all brand new, and there's a, a good uh, scene where they go to their new house and Kitty Oppenheimer walks in and she's like, there's no kitchen. <laughs> and Oppenheimer's like, oh, really? <laughs> I hadn't noticed. Well, yeah, because I... <laughs> they were building everything so fast and a lot of stuff hadn't been finished. Bathtubs too. You mentioned that to me. Uh, which ones, which, which places got to have bathtubs first and what did that become? There's a, a brew pub called Bathtub Row up there. And what it's um, referencing is that Bathtub Row for a while was the one kind of little side street in Los Alamos where there were a couple homes that were kind of more finished than the others, is my understanding, that had bathtubs. <laughs> so, like, if you wanted a bath, you had to go to Bathtub Row because you <laughs> were probably just a shower out in the middle of the desert. <laughs> but I, I, just one thing I'll, I'll add to that, though, and, and I think it depicts it well, you know, building everything from scratch, is that sense of this is from scratch, and part of both the propulsive force of this part of the movie, and I agree with you, Tim, this is where the movie really hums. But part of that propulsive force is the sense that we are 18 months, which is what Oppenheimer you know, says, Grove's like a year, and Oppenheimer's like, no, he corrects him, 18 months. We're behind the Nazis. You know, you didn't need to tell Oppenheimer and many others of this time. The Nazis are really evil. But they had a lot of smart people that had access to heavy water. At that point in time, you could certainly conjecture, or even with you know, with some backing evidence, they are ahead in the race for a super weapon, like mm -hmm. significantly ahead. And we are starting from zero. We have we've built nothing. We've got no means yet for uranium or plutonium. The scientists are scattered all over the United States. And I think it's it's important to remember, and it's captured well that sense in the movie, but of course we live on the other side of World War II. I mean, things were bad right then. Like yep. the Allies were taking L's left and right. And it and and the few people who really understood how destructive this weapon could be are like, you know, the bad guys are way ahead. <laughs> and we're nowhere. So I think it's another important part, and I do think the movie does it justice of this is why this was important. Also, how far behind and how everything's being done from scratch. But of course, it's also the recruiting pitch. And you're you're right. I mean, love a montage, love getting the team together. I thought they did it really well.
Yeah, if the if the search for knowledge in the beginning is like Indiana Jones, this is the Ocean's Eleven <laughs> of the of the movie where you know yep. it's like you're saying, just this pitch getting everyone together. It's it's captivating, propulsive. It's awesome. Except James, you know it it blends Indiana Jones and Ocean's Eleven because the bad guys are Nazis, and you know what? That's true. Nazis <laughs> make great movie villains. <laughs> it makes the best movie villains. So that's right. It's it it always works. <laughs> The the one thing I'll 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 note here we'll get into more about the things that they didn't really cover because it wasn't the purpose of this movie was at one point they did mention well there's nothing here there's like they say at one point you know Native Americans come here to bury their dead or it it was there were people that lived there um there were there were farmers there were both white and Hispanic farmers there were a lot of Native Americans that was part of their territory that were forcibly removed others were were bought out uh, at varying rates of, um, you know, you can imagine uh, the farms owned by whites were paid a lot more than the ones that were Hispanics. And, and ultimately, a lot of those individuals ended up coming to work for the Manhattan Project because it was the, the job company in town uh, and some health issues arrived for individuals. So they don't cover that because it's not really the, the purpose of, of the film, but it is worth noting here. I want to dive, James, because you into Nolan as a filmmaker, I thought one of the most clever things they did in this film was how are they going to talk about like the science of what's going on in a way that's not just completely bonkers and to follow. And he does have a couple really fascinating visual devices that I don't think are based in anything that I could find in terms of in the literature about the historical accounts of this. But he does this one in particular where he's tracking the progress of the creation of fissile material, plutonium and uranium, which is not something that happened in Los Alamos. Los Alamos was where they were designing the bomb package, not where they were built, making the material. That was Oak Ridge uh, in Tennessee, where they were building uh, an enrichment facility to get uranium to the level that you needed to for the type of uranium isotope to build a weapon. And then in Hanford, up in the northwest, that's where they were making the plutonium by burning uranium and, and all that. Trick did Nolan do, I think, to do a lot of stuff here in terms of tracking time and progress to the thing that everyone came here to see. He uses a fishbowl for uranium, and he uses a, I guess, like a Belgian beer goblet <laughs> as a uh, as the the glass for plutonium. And he puts a uh, not a marble, but like a. I think they're marbles. Are they more okay? They looked a little more like oval. Maybe they're, maybe they're marbles. You know, maybe the IMAX stretched it out. Um, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but no, so he's putting marbles into these vessels to kind of signify. Uh, how much of both of those materials is being enriched as they progress through their design of uh, the gadget. This is pretty cool. I think science-wise, um, Nolan, again, is like, in a lot of his like sci-fi films, the sci is often very much like swept to the side mm -hmm. or just sort of, you know, yada, 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 like in, in Inception. Okay, we've got this thing and you can go into dreams. Okay, that's it. <laughs> the thing the thing works and yeah. we're not we're not going to explore like how we arrived here with this device or where it comes from or the genesis of it or any of this thing just works. Interstellar again it's just like the science of it is is so kind of beyond comprehension we're not going to even bother deal with it similar in Tenet like we can travel back back and forth we can, we can go forward we can go back but we're not really explaining any of it. Unfortunately in this movie he has to <laughs> he has to do that. <laughs> uh this is a movie about scientists um and he has to ground it. And I think he does a really good job in doing that. That was actually my number one concern going into the movie was, is he going to like Christopher Nolan this thing? 
where we don't investigate or engage with any of the actual science. We just engage, we just engage with the personalities mm-hmm. or the emotions or the, the big picture things. From from honestly, from the beginning of the film, my concerns were were assuaged because, like, I think he he does a really a brilliant job of of grounding this firmly. I mean, I'm not a physicist, obviously, but but, but he, he he engages with that subject. He talks about it. He, he 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 not only talks about like the personalities and and the the politics, but he he does a great job of of explaining how all of this works um, in a way that's compelling and looks great on the screen. I I think the part that I um really appreciate is he focuses on the level of science detail and what things to focus on that is plot driving. So he talks about the fact that there yeah. are the teams that we'll have to create. Someone will work on the implosion design that will use, you know, uranium and, and uh, and plutonium, but largely most plutonium. We're going to build this gun design. We're going to need to do this. So he like sets up the team, but doesn't explain for large amounts of time what a gun design is. And if you want to hear that, there's many podcast episodes where we cover in great detail uh, what a, what a gun type design is that takes two pieces of subcritical uranium and squishes them together uh, by shooting one of them into another. It's great. He doesn't really do it. He doesn't. He sets it up. It's not important to know any further than this. Uh, I think the best description of this is the super, the the hydrogen bomb, because as they're planning out what to do, we get introduced to this, I think, absolutely brilliant performance. Maybe people didn't care about this as much, but as someone who, like, at one point I was writing my undergraduate thesis on Ed Teller, so good of a performance on this guy. So he's there, and he's like, you know what? You all are basically, I think at one point he describes the fission project as, that's like a math problem. You'll figure it out. Let's talk about building a bomb that uses fusion that brings together elements of hydrogen which would have a massive amount of extra boom for what you're trying to build and everyone's like okay well that's not sure you can even do that but how would you do that well we'd have to do a fission reaction well let's just build that first then right well they do enough of that just to start to set up the characters and their divisions amongst each other because teller cares about this super project everyone else cares about this other thing so you get tension amongst the groups and everyone's a little divided and sometimes you're falling behind or whatever, but they don't really need to get into the science of it, but just enough that it they don't get anything wrong, really, I would say, in, in what they're trying to describe. But the level of detail is just what they need to to advance the plot, which I really respected. And it's a hard, it's a hard task. There is another important thing that we learned. So Teller at one point in this meeting goes, Oppenheimer's uh, like lecturing about something and he comes into a room and he starts passing out papers and he goes... Whatever you're saying is not important. Let's talk about something important. Because he's done some math and he thinks there's a chance that what we were about to do might set the atmosphere on fire and destroy all life on Earth if we test this thing. Because there'll be a, a super critical chain reaction that will just won't stop and the atmosphere will catch on fire. We should probably look into this, right? And it's super interesting that uh, they focus on this. And it's always a it's a very popular thing to bring up about the Manhattan Project. The scientists were before the bomb was tested were betting amongst themselves about whether this was going to happen. But the movie takes this very seriously, and then we'll talk about it later, really uses that to drive home the final, final discussion, the final right-through-your-heart moment of the movie. But it's 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 Teller who brings this up, and whether or not this is going to be a, um, a calculation that is true or not. But what does Oppenheimer do when he's presented with this information, which could end his project? <laughs> He, he uh, well, I think in the in the movie he um, expresses 
the desire to check the math <laughs> without actually stopping the project. Yeah. And he goes to Einstein to check the math, which Tim, I think in, in your, your notes, you know, that's not actually exactly what happened. Yeah, he, he goes to another but, really smart person named James Con Conant, uh, who was a, at that time, like, I think the president of Harvard, who's apparently good, right. at, good at math. Einstein is a central character in the movie. He goes, he goes there. Right. Well, and I think it's important, uh, and uh, I think we get, we'll get we'll get to the, the hammered blow, uh, if you want to say, of the last line in the movie later. I'll just say that it's setting things up, not just because... Einstein was at Princeton and Oppenheimer and Einstein did know each other and, and did have, I'm sure, many interesting discussions. But it is, a, it is a setup also for, of course, Einstein as the figure who's like the, the seer, right? Yeah. He's the, or the, or the pathfinder, the prophet, if you want, uh, choose your, your iconography or your <laughs> phrase exactly. But he's the first, right? And, and, and is rightly revered by these other physicists for opening the door to this this you know universe of ideas and really helping to solidify their field it's important i think in the narrative arc of the movie even though this part isn't real that oppenheimer goes to einstein with this fundamental question of hey are we going to set the world on fire is this the first test of an atom bomb going to be the last moment of human history. You know, Einstein in the in the movie, mm -hmm. he, he declines basically saying, My my day is past, you know, go to you know someone else to do the the math for you. But it's it's right about the middle of the movie and it is this hinge, right? And, yeah. and then it's important later. He means this in a literal sense as we described, like set the atmosphere on fire, the world would end yes. through this supercritical reaction. Uh, and we see that visually presented in a way that maybe is Albert's or uh, Oppenheimer's thoughts here. We see the Earth from space and like an asteroid just hit it and you see the fire slowly engulf the Earth. Visually, it looks amazing. Maybe, James, some of the best fire on CGI since Sunshine? It looks looks great. I mean, there's a couple, Terrifying. There's a couple of moments. I, I don't know. Maybe we'll get to this in the parking lot discussion, so I won't talk about it too much but there's a couple of moments in the movie where you, you kind of enter into the surreal yeah um and this is and this is one of them um where you sort of see the earth on fire so those moments are really interesting in the in the movie and hopefully we'll we can talk a little bit more about them later because i know we're trying to get to the plot here exactly um <laughs> so he he he's had this conversation they go to the, they go check the math ultimately they decide it's not zero but it's right around zero uh and that becomes a kind of a running joke is that you know we can't get to zero what do you want from theory um and all of that kind of fun stuff but uh the team is focused on stuff they decided to keep proceeding on they're they're focused primarily with fission as the pathway to a working warhead and teller's work is still considered to be like a little bit of a joke but he does like why we need to focus on this and at one point he quits it's like, I'm going to leave because everyone's being mean to me uh, and no one's listening to my, my work. And Oppenheimer has to play the role of project manager, program manager, and has to like baby him into staying kind of with the threat of, look, you're not leaving this facility. Like if we have to put you on janitor duty or if you have to, you know, clean the backboard of the basketball hoop in the common cafeteria room or wherever they had where the people were playing and, and relaxing like you're gonna do that you're not gonna leave here you're more dangerous outside than in here but he says 
continue your work. But that's important because he says, continue your work. You know, the H-bomb project, I'm all in favor of it. You need to stay here. We need your help. Uh, so he's, he's reluctant. He doesn't think the science is right, but he doesn't stop him. And this is important too, because at one point Oppenheimer was, was asked way later about whether or not he was you know, in favor of this work. And he says, you know, this challenge on the, on the super was technically so sweet, you could not argue with it. You could quote, when you see something that technically sweet, you go ahead and you do it. So that's also part of Oppenheimer's personality of wanting to push the envelope with science. We learn at this point, because Neil Bohr gets also an amazing story uh, that I wonder if anyone's ever covered in a, in a movie before, but he gets taken away i believe he goes from sweden into denmark or maybe the other way around but he gets out of europe uh, and is now in los alamos and he tells the story that germany's making mistakes they are pursuing a heavy water path to um, getting fissile material in that kind of process which we cover quite in great detail in the movie the heroes of telmark which is about a sabotage effort in norway uh, in order to be able to destroy the heavy water producing facility that the nazis had but anyways i digress uh the whole point is that that the scientists are excited because instead of using graphite as a moderator for their plutonium production they're using heavy water which is possible but it's going to put them way behind and everyone's excited and there's a sense then that we might be able to beat the germans to the bomb and the movie actually all of a sudden gets to the point where germany surrenders and there's debate amongst the scientists about whether or not they're going to proceed with the project at all because that was part of the effort was to convince them you know do this because otherwise the nazis have a bomb but then everybody pivots quickly. Oppenheimer convinces the scientists to stop their protests and to, look, we got to defeat a Japan. We've got to bring American troops home. We can't fight a land war. That starts to become the motivation for what's happening here. And that's an interesting pivot point. We're also faced with a situation where Oppenheimer, his attention is distracted and drawn to other things, like Jean Tetlock in San Francisco. She gives a phone call. She rings. She asks for him to come back. What happens there? Well, they, they sort of are reliving all of the, I guess, like the tension of their entire relationship was about that he really, I think, loved her and she didn't really love him um, or she only loved him in a way that was convenient to her, I suppose. Um, so, yeah, they have a, another, you know, they sleep together in San Francisco in a hotel and basically Opie says, Opie, sorry, Opie says, uh, you know, I, I, this this is the end. Um, I can't see you anymore. Um, you can kind of tell that he's totally absorbed with his work and his new life. And this is something from his past life that he's, he's like just willing to sort of throw off, even though I think he really does. Well, we know he deep, he deeply cares for her. And we learned the extent of her caring about him at this point. Yeah. Because beforehand, you know, um, I guess the roles are reversed a little bit. You know, he, he's sort of like, I'll, I'll, I'll always, you know, I'll, I'll always pick up. I'll always come, mm -hmm. come, come to your aid. And think that's sort of a ballast for her in her life and then he sort of says in the scene that you know i'm not gonna i'm not gonna be there for you anymore uh this this is it so that's a pretty traumatic traumatic event for her traumatic scene for her we see some scenes of her suicide which are well assumed suicide i think we i guess the historical record is out on this some people think she was drowned some people think she drowned herself, but we see him riding his horse into the New Mexico wilderness, I guess. And this is actually confusing for me. So this is a tangent, but I'll I'll like I'll go to my tangent after I wrap this up. But um, <laughs> so uh, uh, we see uh, see him go. He's sort of crying underneath a, a, a rock, and his his wife played uh, his wife Kitty, you know, comforts him, and it's really distressing because it's like I cheated on you. 
again probably with this person who you know and she's like my god you're awful <laughs> but but you know but like we're we're married it's it's a very you know it's it's, it's super awkward um yeah get it together <laughs> get it yeah and i guess my tangent was like like i guess they, maybe he had special permission he's allowed to like ride his horse off los alamos i thought it was like a closed yeah. circuit I, I it's it's difficult sometimes understanding how closed it was and i guess there's there are like all these um physical security concerns that are addressed later in the film like was it that tight like who's a spy who what like all the, but i guess he could he could go and just ride his horse off i mean i'm sure every time he left the fbi put another page in that file yeah fair enough <laughs> so this was something i want to ask you about i did not notice this until i read uh something after the watching the movie but apparently there's like nolan much like you know is that spinning top at the end of inception you know, going to stop or not, and it's unclear whether it was all a dream or whatever, but, like, there's apparently also extra hands that are, at one point, appear when Jean Tatlock is being, essentially drowning herself with uh, taking a bunch of habituates to fall asleep and drown herself in a bathtub. Apparently, if you watch it closely, there's, like, maybe shadows or other hands that appear uh, at one point. I didn't notice that, but people have been talking about it, but that sounds like a very Nolan... Thing. And again, we don't actually see this. We this is this is um, Oppenheimer thinking it. So right. you can always say that. I don't know if anyone else noticed that during the movie when they were watching at ten a.m. I, I didn't know. So kudos to that small little subtle detail. Now we're at the point where, if you've been watching this movie, if you've been listening to this podcast this long, what are you here for? You're here to see Trinity, the the test of the first nuclear weapon, a plutonium implosion design. We're given a deadline by Groves, by the military, political establishment. This thing needs to be built before Potsdam. The big discussions of Churchill and Stalin and Truman. He needs a working device that the thought was, you get this thing to Truman, you bring it to the table, you talk about the importance of it, why this thing is really dangerous, and maybe that will ultimately decide, end the war on American's terms or whatever you need to do in the peace negotiations. And maybe we can stop building this thing and just talk about how dangerous this is and, and walk through that. But we'll see if that actually does work. But that's the deadline that they're all they're all given. I want, Justin, you to talk about this scene. We get the targeting debate scene with a bunch of important players that were involved in this meeting. And there were maybe definitely others. But this is the a very famous you know discussion meeting led by Secretary of War, Henry Stimson. Yeah, thanks. Uh, Stimson, and, and, I, and I knew what's going to happen. I, I know this part of the story. Um, there are a list of, of several Japanese uh, cities that are possible targets. And uh, Stimson takes uh, Kyoto off the <laughs> list. And he takes it off, uh, and you know, part of the historical this is part of the historical record, saying because of the you know the socio and, and and cultural and historical significance of Kyoto to the Japanese people, uh, he he took it off the targeting list. Uh, the movie then adds, <laughs> and Tim, a colleague of mine, told me today this part is not true. <laughs> In the movie, the Stimson character says, oh, and me, my wife and I honeymooned there. <laughs> so I guess that actually didn't happen. It's kind of an interesting so, little flourish in the movie. I'm sure if you would listen to me do this podcast oh, when we did Fat Man, A Little Boy, um, I may have even mentioned that that's exactly what happened. That him and his wife went on a trip there, a honeymoon or something. Because that's what a lot of the there's a lot of books that are out there that that use this quote. One of the best historians working today on nuclear issues, Alex Wellerstein, uh, I believe he's at Stevens Institute. 
he writes this great blog called NuclearSecrecy.com. He's also the person who uh, runs Nuke Map. If you ever want to see what a nuclear bomb might do to your hometown or your bully's uh, house or whatever, he runs all of that stuff. But he dives into these questions and he was irritated uh, by this particular scene because he's like, I don't really know where that comes from everyone always says it that it was a honeymoon and he but no one ever quotes what's the original source documentation of this and he just put out a a blog post today earlier today uh on this so i will link to it and it's fascinating because he traces it back to maybe a 2002 article a journalistic flourish he calls it where he says stimson went on a second honeymoon with his wife there which doesn't necessarily mean a honeymoon but he did visit there he did visit there a number of times at least twice with his wife and himself as part of his role. So he, he definitely liked it, but there's no record that that was the main reason that he did it. Right. And, and my colleague referenced uh, Wallace. I mean, I, 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 whose, whose work is, you know, I, I recommend uh, people check out if they haven't read it uh, anyway. But I, I think it's one of those cases where the filmmaker would say he had been there. Yeah. Like he, he really knew, he, he actually knew not just that the city wasn't just he read out of a book. This is a city that's important to the Japanese people. He had actually been there and that made a difference. And he takes it off the list. And, you know, maybe, uh, who knows exactly at the end of the day, various, there were various discussions that went into what was going to be targeted. Um, you know, I, I don't think I'll unpack that debate here. That's another podcast yeah, yeah. or an entire series of podcasts. But I think what I will say is that that scene, and it is Stimson, it is Oppenheimer, it's some of the other scientists, uh, military folks mm-hmm. together. And it's, I think, compressing various things together i don't think there was ever one uh meeting exactly like that but i thought it effective in sort of synthesizing that in this meeting you get uh, oppenheimer expressing i think some concern but not actual opposition right right and and also you get not as much of a discussion as maybe you think might have happened for what is going to be the targets of the uh, initial atomic bombs. And of course, later, um, there's lots of discussion and endless discussion, let's face it, endless discussion in our field and criticism and back and forth and competing hysteriographies and competing questions of of morality. And and it's all really important. I'll just say that for the purpose of the movie, I thought it was effective in communicating a couple things that are important, that Stimson had a personal tie to Kyoto and that's why he takes it off the list. And that Oppenheimer is a voice in the discussion, but he's not a strong voice. And it's and and in the end of the day, and you and I talked about this uh, before, Tim, it it already is a decision that is out of the hands of the scientists. Exactly, the scientists have no veto over what is going to be ultimately targeted. And there's another scene where he is trying to say something to a, a couple military officers about like that. Well, it should be this height of burst or something. And they're like, no, no, we, <laughs> we've got it now. And it's quite evocative also as the, as the fat man and little boy are put into crates, you know, almost, uh, uh, you know, just like the Ark of the covenant. And we're going <laughs> back to Indiana Jones again, but it's hard to escape. Uh, um, and, you know, and leave Los Alamos is like, right. We built it. And there it goes. So it is an important scene, but I'm getting ahead of ourselves, uh, Tim. 
the the scene right of the movie the 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 part that is the critical end of the second act super critical actually the super critical <laughs> you're absolutely right so lo- let me clear out here for you and James to talk about some really uh, truly amazing scenes of cinema expectations i think by all of us were high and, and the entire movie going public who's ever watched nolan before but um you know you guys talk about the trinity test yeah and, and let me throw it over to you james by starting you know they had to find a spot to do this test uh he says i need my brother frank who also was a scientist in his own right i need frank to come even though frank's a card-carrying member of the communist party or what is at one point at least uh, i need frank because he knows the desert very well and there literally cannot possibly be another person in this earth that knows this desert as well to pick a target location for this test but they find this place to go test the the weapon ultimately in alamogordo new mexico and they get there and they decide, okay, well, what are they going to call this place? Uh, and they, and Oppenheimer calls it Trinity, which is ultimately what the, the test itself was codenamed. They don't delve into it too much in the movie, but, uh, you know, the historical record shows uh, that Oppenheimer, this is from a uh, poem by John Dorn. It's one of his favorites, also was a favorite of Gene Tatlock. Uh, it's a lot of phrases like batter my heart, three person God. And it's a really very interesting story about the conflicts between people and their soul and what they've done and seeking redemption, but also seeking a recognition for what they've done. That's ultimately why they call it that and where it's there. And they set up the test site. But James, as someone who hasn't like Justin been to the Trinity test site, right? You've, you've seen it. You've gotten your Trinitite, the glass that was created from the sand that was destroyed by the, the heat. Someone who is not into this world. What, what do you see? What are you taking away? What are you tracking when you're watching them putting together from a cinematic standpoint a very powerful scene i would say yeah honestly the first thing that came to mind was there will be blood hmm. um this it it, it it resembles an oil derrick the way it's brought out of the earth out of the desert like where there's nothing around it it's built of steel not wood but rises above us in in some ways like is destined to destroy our world depending on your view of things um bringing oil out of the earth or, or dropping a bomb into it um but i think beyond that beyond that take i think just cinematically like um it's 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 just this it's full of, you know like I, I watched the trinity footage today i was like all right i need to watch the actual actual thing i, I mean I've, I've seen it in videos of course throughout my life and in, in film probably in school or at some point um but I, I think they did a really good job of it looks like frontier stuff, right? Mm-hmm. It, it honestly does not look like what you would think a government thing by our standards in 2023 would look like. It is this scaffolding coming out of the earth in the middle of nowhere, and they are hoisting this atomic bomb up with like pulleys and like they're sliding things in by hand and they're sliding like coverings in and the whole thing feels so like tactile like handmade which i think is something that you know not to like not to like go back to like the cottage cottage industry of like homemade bomb like our 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 bombs used to be made by hand and now they're made by robots but (laughs) but but it just feels like this is like um almost like a a a work of art the way they're assembling it and they're Mm -hmm. putting it together versus like our you know you know, the military industrial complex now where it is, is so like individuals are so detached from it right so that was something that 
really stood out in these scenes. And just the way that they're talking about how far away do we need to be? And, you know, these are theoretical physicists. And the one who asked that question, he's like, oh, or is this a safe distance? And they're like, well, we're going off your math. So, <laughs> <laughs> I hope it is like, and it's, it's like, it's where the rubber meets the road, right? It's like, we've never done anything like this before. We're building these viewpoints from whatever, 9,000 meters. And then I think 10, I, I can't remember the specific distances, but everything is theoretical, right? Right. Like, and I think this, again, goes to this point in the beginning. And then also we'll, we'll see in a couple of minutes from now where will we actually ignite the atmosphere on fire? We, we all know this was going to happen. The movie, like they, we know they were going to, in the poster, you see the, the bomb behind it. And, and we know the Trinity story. Does it build enough tension for you in this moment? Does it feel like a tense thing or is it just say, like, we know what's going to happen. Why don't we just get past it? Yeah. I think you would need a, I think, you know, people say sometimes you can content, cut tension with a knife. I think you would need a like diamond tipped knife or a laser to cut the tension that's mm -hmm. developed in these 15 minutes of, of this particular scene in the movie. This is like so tense. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Justin, I, I saw you leaning in. Uh, you, you know, you, you paid for the whole seat, <laughs> but you only really needed the edge. What about what about for you? What what, what, are, what are you thinking about when you're seeing the visuals? Because again, look, I also want to stress, sorry to throw this to you and then stop, but like the, the vermicillitude of what we're seeing here is is very powerful. I'm, I'm not trying to like undercut the implications like, wow, this is, this is cool because people died later uh, and there was significant danger involved in this. But from a perspective of like telling a moment in history and what the people there must have felt like, what, what are you taking away from from that. Yeah, thanks, Tim. I think it's a a sign of how well the movie handles so many different threads of of narrative, but also thematically that come together at Trinity. I felt both in sort of the background or my subconscious, I think the weight of all those things, while at the same time in the moment you're just so caught up in even though you know what's going to happen even though I, I know exactly what's going to happen you, still part of you is because of the way he builds tension with the uh way he shoots it also i think this is another case i, I think we've noted it a couple times already just phenomenal acting Right. That you feel the stakes for the characters who, of course, don't know what's going to happen as as it leads up to this moment, which also helps build the tension that just the empathy you see of these human beings who've been under incredible stress and aren't exactly sure what's going to happen. And you feel all that. Um, and I, I think that it both the scene itself, and I'll, I'll leave it uh, to the two of you if you want to talk more about sort of filmography or special effects or anything, but the scene itself, but then the the next couple scenes capture the the essence of, I think, the, the movie and really, I think, of Oppenheimer himself, which is this is a, a signal achievement, like a, a, an, an enormously impressive, almost miraculous achievement in the moment. Of, of both science, but also what it means for the war. And they've they've led you up to that point. And whether, does this mean we could win? Because <laughs> hey, there's still a question, are we going to win this war or not? Or or how are things gonna, going, going to go anyway? So there's, there's those things, but there is the 
and they've laid those breadcrumbs. The also, oh my gosh, we did. So there's both, we did it, hooray, and oh my gosh, we did it. We did and it. What yeah, does yeah. that mean? And what does that portend? You know, for human beings and civilization, did something, did something sort of shift on its axes in a way that's profound and meaningful? And 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 you know, there's a, a pathos there. And I, I felt it brought that all together with that scene and the celebration in the moment, but then some of the stuff that happens afterward really well. And it's a tension. Uh, I think, t Tim, even, you know, I I'll be interested to talk to more people who aren't in the nuclear field who see this movie and how they feel about it. But it is the, the, the buildup of tension you have to feel when you have an awareness and you work in the day-to-day -day with something that is so important. And to me, I mean, I'm a well, cards on the table. I'm a deterrence guy. I think nuclear weapons are important to deterrence and national defense, but I know full well how devastating and mm -hmm. powerful and terrible these weapons are. And I know exactly not just the, 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 you know, I understand the policy and the science and the consequence of the, the of of the use of the weapons in in Hiroshima and Nagasaki and what it would mean god forbid if they were reused again i felt all those things uh in in the moment then let me turn it over to you guys though for let, there's a, the flash and there's silence and then what happens next? Not only are they trying to understand what this could potentially mean for the end of the war and all of that in this moment in history, but it was also, if this thing doesn't work, that's our jobs. We're fired. $2 billion <laughs> right. wasted. Yeah. So there's this weird, like, practical perspective. With all of this buildup, what's going to stop it? But rain and storms, and they just needed to get this thing done at this point because they had to get on the phone, get on an airplane over to, to Potsdam with this news. There's all these debates about are they going to be able to do it? They, they were meant, originally meant to do it at 4 o'clock. It's rain, and in this almost prophetic moment, you see Oppenheimer out there being like, the rain will break. You know, all of this stuff, and of course he had a meteorologist there to tell him the same information. Uh, the <laughs> I'm glad they include the very famous line where Leslie Grove like points at the meteorologist like if there if this rain doesn't break I'm gonna hang you. But you're right, visually Oppenheimer is in a viewing booth with a little slit to be able to kind of watch, look out, and he's got his goggles and he's looking straight at the you know where where everything is. Everyone else is outside laying down away from the blast, and then that way they don't they don't get burned by whatever light will be emitted everybody's looking through these little cards that will help them see but not hurt their eyes but the visuals of this are i think are fascinating you get a you get a countdown you get everything set up a real slow and james the will be blood excellent uh call to this because there's a lot of this does not take place with any dialogue it's very deliberate and slow a lot of unlocking of locks and getting detonators and turning switches and everything to make sure that this thing goes off just when you want it to and not before there's even a little red button that i think is meant to be an abort button in case voltage drops and you know it's not ready yet and there's all of this really tense moment uh, we get our countdown of three minutes and then we get the visuals which are people can talk you know you can read any article you want to about this movie usually the pr team is going to be talking to you about how christopher nolan built an actual bomb uh you know didn't do any of this in cgi and it's really a fascinating thing about like did basically a lot of conventional explosives, huge ones, messed with magnesium and balloons and all of this stuff to create this impressive imagery, but it's all done in silence. Visually there, but no noise, 
except for another minute, minute later, shockwaves hit. And I truly jumped in my seat. Gotta see this movie with Dolby Digital Audio. Yeah. It was felt my bones shaking. And you get the crowd, jubilation noises, uh, not in our in the theater, but the people that were watching there recognizing that they, it worked. And my favorite bit was Ed Teller sitting there in a like a lounge chair putting all kinds of various like face uh like suntan lotion on his face because he didn't want to be on the ground he wanted to see it and he's sitting there with his goggles i thought that was kind of really interesting and then the guy who's sitting in the car uh what, what was it was that uh Feynman? it's just a funny line it's like he's like the, yeah. UV, the glass stops the uv and someone's like what stops the glass yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's real uh, he claims he's the only person to, to witness the Trinity test with his own eyes and not through goggles or or something okay. else. Yeah. Um, I guess he's lucky they didn't get impaled by Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> that shockwave was pretty pretty strong. Yeah. <laughs> this is a description of an army general who saw Oppenheimer immediately after this. For the last few seconds, he stared directly ahead. And when the announcer shouted, now, there came this tremendous burst of light, followed shortly thereafter by deep, rowling roar of the explosion. Oppenheimer's face relaxed into an expression of tremendous relief. And then that's when you get, again, another quote from the Hindu Bible, the I have become death, the destroyer of worlds, uh, which Alex Wallerstein, again, he's everywhere right now talking about this movie. He thought it was interesting to place this in history that Oppenheimer is not comparing himself to a god, which is often how it's described. But here's how he tells it. Oppenheimer is not a, a Vinshu Krishna. He's not a terrible god. He's not the destroyer of worlds. He is a human prince, uh, Arjuna. He is the one who didn't really want to kill his brothers, his fellow people. But he has been enjoined to battle by something bigger than himself. Physics, fission, the atomic bomb, World War II, what have you. And only at that moment when it truly reveals its nature, the Trinity test, does he fully see why he, a man who hates war, is compelled to battle. It is the bomb that is here for destruction. Oppenheimer is merely, as he sees it, you know, my words, the man who is witnessing it. So, yeah, I, I thought that scene was very powerful and even more so when they get back to Los Alamos and there's a prep rally you know including bleachers and a basketball court they're talking this is after the actual bombing of Hiroshima and, and Nagasaki and is the real life event you know this is based on his quotes that people have of him he's trying to get people pumped up uh he says things like the Japanese probably didn't like our bomb that we built very much his only regret was the fact that he couldn't build it faster to use it against Germany but it's kind of clear he doesn't really want to play that role at that point, we start to get a sense, right, that he's a little conflicted about what he's seeing and thinking and hearing. James, how, how do they pull that off? This is a... Yeah, it's one of the other moments in the film where they use sort of this surrealistic lens. And um, he starts to see the skin melt off the faces of certain people. He's, he hears kind of silence, but then interspersed with crowds cheering. It feels like he's outside himself making these remarks um he's sort of like he's dis he's disassociated right yeah so um this is all this is all happening but he's not it, it, you're you're feeling the whole movie from his point of view but at this point you realize that it's not him that's it's, it's really not him that's saying these things it's, it's very strange yeah some disturbing imagery with the melting faces and then he walks away from the podium as he's leaving the auditorium and uh, his foot steps into what you i guess you it's it's, it's a charred, charred body a charred corpse um 
And I'm missing anything else that's... Uh, I, I, I think the other stuff that's really powerful, you mentioned the noise dropping in and out, but, but like, yeah. it's freaky because you see, you hear, like, the stomping of the feet but not cheering. And then you hear... Right. This is the part that got me the most uh, was you hear cheering and like screams of woo. But then right. at one point you hear at the very last second someone screaming and it sounds right. like someone on fire or hurting. And then they, you see a big flash. You hear someone you see someone crying. Is it joy or is it sadness? You see people making out at one point and then you see people crying and huddling together. You see someone outside who's vomiting. And is that because they drank too much or is that radiation poisoning? Uh, there's background distortions. It, it does a lot more than showing images of, I think, you know, the images of Hiroshima or in Nagasaki are powerful. But the movie, and Justin, you talked about this when we were having our parking lot discussion afterwards, it, it, it is trying to, I think, access this to people in a way that doesn't hit them over the head with the imagery of what actually happened, but tries to get to them in a, in a more almost spiritual or in an inner core sense of what they're feeling what what did you get away from from this? You know, you asked me at the outset, you know, how I felt about uh, the movie being made, or when I heard about it first being made, and part of my ambivalence and concern after my ex initial excitement was that you know the the Manhattan Project and both the the desire to defeat the Axis powers. Um, you know, the, the terrible evil that those uh, powers, you know, wrote, wrought upon the world and uh, the, the desire to, you know, throw everything that we had into that fight, or a, you know, an, an existential fight. I mean, one that had to be fought um, and, and how scientists felt they were contributing to it through the Manhattan Project. You know, that can be true at the same time. That then the the you know the the reality of then its use on uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and the fact that, and again we're getting into areas of historical debate. I'll put my cards on the table. I, I think it did help in the war sooner. I think that meant that a lot more people, U.S. service members. The Japanese soldiers, but also Japanese civilians. I think a lot more would have died if uh, you know, the bombs hadn't been used. But I'll set that aside and just say it is it is complicated. You know, two things can be true. You can feel on behalf of the scientists to include Oppenheimer. So let's return to the scientists and Oppenheimer. It can both be true that you feel this incredible compulsion as a scientist and a human being to work on something like the Manhattan Project. And at the same time, it's entirely authentic as a human being to have this response, even in the same moment of I'm elated and we won and so many lives were saved. And then, oh, my gosh, so many lives were ended in this horrible fashion. And what does that mean? And all those things can happen at the same time. And part of my concern was that I couldn't imagine how a movie could do that. And, I, and yet I think that he did. I think he did that in the scene, and you and James just described it really well. And it's not just the visuals. You you noted it, Tim, the, the sound design, which is incredible and evocative. And it manages to convey all these things in a way I found profound uh, and, and moving and compelling. And I hope other people felt that way, too. 
and worked better than to have because you know a different movie or a different filmmaker a different creative choice would be to have something like i don't know oppenheimer or or some of the the scientists that circulated some of the petitions about not using the bomb having like a debate right or or there are so many other ways in which other movies do this poorly out of a sincere desire to express something important but it just doesn't work and I thought it was a remarkable scene. I think it captured so many of those ideas in a way that is incredibly compelling. Yeah, and, and there are references to, you know, you, you see Leo Szilard and you see David Hill that trying to get that petition signed and saying, go to um, Truman about this, go to the, the groups. And, and Oppenheimer, is, as you saw early, and you mentioned earlier, you know, he's kind of equivocating. He doesn't know, I'm not going to sign this, but... Maybe I'll bring reviews up and things like this. But really, you see this hitting him very closely. He gets his moment. He gets to meet Truman. You know, you'd hope so. Uh, at that point, uh, he'd be able to at least uh, talk to the to, to the White House about what do we do next? Truman, essentially, played by Gary Oldman. So, such a great performance. Only in the movie for like three minutes. But he kind of ignores Oppenheimer's concerns. He says at one point, what do we do next with Los Alamos? Oppenheimer says, give it back. To the, to the Native Americans, and they look at him and like, no, we're going to build more. What are you talking about? You know, this is uh, got to put the bomb project, got to move it forward. We don't care about an arms race. We have to uh, advance this moving forward. And, and Truman um, dismisses Oppenheimer's quote. He says at one point, like, I've got blood on my hands. And Truman hands him a handkerchief, which is some way that Truman tells a story later. And it's like, here, you know, clean yourself off. And I think one of the most powerful quotes in the movie is Truman saying, no one in Japan cares about who built the bomb. They care about the person who ordered it to be used. And that's me, uh, which I thought was interesting because at one point he's like, I was like, is he trying to take credit for all of this? Or is he trying to assuage, you know, Oppenheimer? He's saying like, don't, you know, I'm the one who ordered it. You know, don't you worry about it. But I don't think it's, I think it's meant to basically be like, look, I did this. This is me. And now people are starting to take ownership of this thing that Oppenheimer created. And now it's slipping away from him and his ability to control. And as Oppenheimer leaves the Oval Office, you hear a quote that's just a real account, not from within earshot of, of Oppenheimer, but it's a real quote where he's, Truman says, don't let that crybaby scientist back in here again. And I think that starts to set a position for what Oppenheimer's post war period was because he did not remain the head of los alamos for very long uh he left and as we saw he became the director of the institute for uh, advanced studies but you start to see him take a different kind of role in the field he leads opposition to further development of the the h-bomb the the fusion bomb that teller was so proud of sometimes that's based on a sense of like the destruction and the size of the bomb and the arms race. Other times it seemed like because he wanted to focus much more on building additional fusion bombs because those were tactically able to be used in the battlefield, an H-bomb, megatons worth of damage. Uh, what target could you possibly have on this except civilians that'll cause Americans to be targeted? So it was an interesting back and forth about how he was very conflicted in some ways and other times was in favor of developing the science of it. And it starts to show that this guy thrives in an environment as a scientist that is uh, very contradictory. 
where does this all lead, right? So we're, we're past this. They were in the final third of the movie, and we cannot let this podcast go longer than a Christopher Nolan movie. That would be quite, quite <laughs> presumptuous. <laughs> Let's take the final wrap-up here. You know, the movie ends with this, the framing device. And really, we're not describing things as how they place in the movie. But there's this cue clearance um, over his uh, potential past uh, derogatory situations with, with the Communist Party. And, and very importantly, his opposition, in his opinion, of loyal opposition, but his opposition to the H-bomb. Because Strauss, Strauss and uh, others and Teller and the whole establishment of who wants to build the super and advance it um, don't doesn't like Oppenheimer's role that he has in in society. That's at least how the movie and how, how American Prometheus describes it. And because, of course, um, from a perspective that multiple times in the life of uh, Leos, um, in the life of uh, Strauss, he was embarrassed by Oppenheimer. So there's a grudge there. He secretly, basically, as a director and the head of the uh, Atomic Energy Commission, which eventually became the Department of Energy, uh, leads this charge secretly to create a situation where Oppenheimer can't win. Uh, his clearance will get removed. It's kind of a little bit of a kangaroo court. Uh, he starts to, he appoints the judges, he appoints the, um, he sets the rules, he doesn't give clearances to the legal defense team of Oppenheimer. He just gives all of the FBI files to the judges who are reading these things. If this was a court, this would be, was a tabula rasa violation of, you're not, the judges aren't supposed to know the evidence before they're presented with it. Um, and no one knows what's going on except for the people who are meant to judge his, his clearance. And we started to learn a little bit more, right? We, we, we met, we talked about this guy earlier, this, uh, friend of his from Berkeley, um, Hakan Chevalier, uh, again, mispronounced it. You just said it perfectly, Justin. Chevalier. Chevalier. Chevalier affair. So it's okay. This was a guy who came to Oppenheimer and said, you know, I got a buddy who says that it would be nice if the Americans shared intel with their allies in Russia about stuff. So if you ever know of any info you want to pass along, I could do it. Uh, or this guy could, you know, this guy's coming to me and asking for this. And Oppenheimer's like, no, that would be treason. But he doesn't tell anyone about this until much, much later. And kind of in an offhand way, tells a security officer when he's visiting Berkeley about it. And the next day he meets Kesey Affleck playing a very, very intense dude, Boris Posh, who's a famous guy who's known for killing, strangling uh, communist with his bare hands. He's an intelligence officer, and he interviews Oppenheimer. James, did you like this scene? I thought this scene was terrifying. Uh, with them, them in an office interviewing Oppenheimer about what this situation was. Oppenheimer seems very controlled a lot of the time. Like he's he's very smart. He has he's slippery political, political backing. He's he can work his way through university politics, um, but he cannot outfox a professional fox. I think it's an interesting and a really cool way to show that like, and creepy too, like that he's like, he's an operator. He's not just this like, scientific guy who has no street smarts, but also when it comes to like dealing with like professional spy hunters, he's, he's, he's toast. Yeah. Um, it so. almost, it almost to me, it reminded <laughs> me of scenes from like John Wick where he's like, wait, what did you do? You stole John Wick's car and killed his dog. What are you doing? And then it was like, well, what's this, 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 this guy? What's the problem? And he's like, no, John Wick killed a man with a pencil. Yeah. Leslie Grove is describing 
Casey Affleck's character, that Boris Passion, like what he was and what you were should be worried about now. And he makes this stupid decision, basically, to make up a broader story of multiple people. Uh, you know, he gives the name of the person who was trying to seek information, but he doesn't tell him about his friend. He doesn't tell him about his own role in being the person that was asked this question. And according to a lot of, like, historical debate and accounts, and definitely the people who were his accusers, his brother Frank might have also been involved. And Oppenheimer never admits any of this level of detail for many, many months or some of it never, ever, this is a central component of the case against him. Even though he was cleared multiple times, it's a different world now, right? It's like the early 1950s, and communism and, and the Red Scare and McCarthyism and all of that has set up a new situation where Oppenheimer may not actually be cleared anymore. And it's a perfect guise for Strauss and others to take away his clearance. And Kitty is furious. Like, no, why aren't you defending yourself? Why are you getting run over? They're going to tar and feather you at one point, she says. What do you think that's going to make the world think you're a martyr and forgive you for the crimes and the sins that you think you've committed? And I think these scenes in the movie are terrific. The scenes in the hearing. I'm curious, James, for you, as someone who didn't maybe spend the five hours the night before rereading all of the hearing testimony like I did before I saw this movie. Does that scene work for you as a a moviegoer and maybe not a follower of this particular history, the whole hearing. Yeah, I, th I think they're done really well. I like the perspective where you're kind of always looking at Oppenheimer over the shoulder yeah. of the of the person that's... And all of that's real. He sat in the back of a room, chain smoking yeah. on a leather couch. Yeah, the cigarettes are just, just a lot. Um, <laughs> but uh, maybe that's the real killer, right? Um, but but uh, no, I think that... I thought this was done really well. When we get to my review, I will yeah. mention one thing about this, but for me, this worked. Um, I'm a huge fan of uh, courtroom dramas, and I think this, this well, as as they say multiple times, this is not a court. <laughs> we are not judges. Um, <laughs> I think this is like actually really one of the better procedural dramatizations that that exists, and I I I, I enjoyed every minute of it. I really did, and I thought I thought I thought I, thought, I just thought it was great. And, and we started to learn that Robert Downey Jr.'s character was behind this thing the whole time. Uh, he was supposed to be this unbiased friend of Oppenheimer, trying to basically like, I'm, I'm, I'm on your side here. Maybe we can get them to, if you resign, or maybe we can get them to pass, you know, not, not do this. And he, he's like passing FBI files on to people and, and basically encouraging this guy Borden to, you know, launch a, a letter to to Hoover and get this whole thing moving. There's a quote about what, why did he do this? Well, one of Strauss's uh, colleagues said, if you disagree with Lewis about anything, he assumes you're a fool at first. But if you go on to disagree with him, he concludes you must be a traitor and really drives us forward. And we learn about this because while this is happening, and again, obviously, he loses his clearance. Uh, it's a two to one vote. Uh, he loses his clearance and it kind of goes away from the public limelight for quite a long time. No longer plays this huge central role that he once had in, in America. But parallels to the cabinet hearings that we talked about earlier the fusion element where strauss is thinking this is going to be a slam dunk case but then scientists start to come in david hill played by sammy Ralick malik comes in and eventually says you know scientists hate you and don't want you involved anymore in decision making and we don't trust you and it starts to reveal somehow knows about strauss's role in all of this and ultimately gets voted down and it was like the first time since the 20s that a cabinet member was rejected i really just truly love 
these conversations with between Strauss and then this, I guess, like White House aide to Congress, mm-hmm. uh, like a liaison to like shepherds through all of the various cabinetry uh, people um, that are coming through for hearings. And at first, it seems like Strauss is this like friendly little, you know, like guy, you know, maybe a little quirky. You start to reveal and he starts going through all these monologues and paranoia about what's happening. And you eventually, guy who I didn't realize was played by the same dude who plays Han Solo in, yeah, so. Elder Aldrich. I didn't realize that until way after. I knew I recognized him, but he eventually turns on Strauss a little bit and, and you know, come up and said, happens here. Uh, and there's a great line where he said, he, he starts to talk again about this meeting Einstein and Oppenheimer had at Princeton. And it's the driving thing in the movie, right? They're at the lake or the pond. They're at the pond. Strauss sees them having a conversation, comes up to say hello, and Einstein blanks him. And he says, I knew it. I knew ever since that time period, Oppenheimer, he's always wanted the attention, but he never wanted any of the criticism. He didn't want to be responsible for the bomb but and the other stuff, but he never said no. I knew he turned Albert against me. This aide says, you know, they probably weren't even talking about you. That's what you fear the most. They were talking about something more important. So this exchange is, is, is great. So here's the quote from the movie. Uh, Oppenheimer says to Albert Einstein, When I came to you with those calculations, we thought we might start a chain reaction that would destroy the entire world. Einstein says, I remember it very well. What of it? And Oppenheimer looks right at him and says, I believe we did. And he sees rain falling on the pond. And you see little drops and drips. And then it starts to show a map earlier where they were trying to come up with uh, various targets for the bomb and started doing like circumferences and building out, you know, where the blast radius are going to be. Then you see rain hitting that map and with these little drops. And then you see images of uh, missiles flying and bombs going off. It, it parallels the scene we saw earlier in the movie where there was the CGI Earth from space starting to burn, but instead of from one central location, it's a bunch of different bombs and other things happening. And, I, and the movie concludes with, maybe despite all of this, we stopped the world from catching on fire from an accident, but did we do something that created a possible chain reaction that we no longer can control? And that's where the movie essentially concludes and stops uh, very abruptly. That's how we, yeah, that's how we wrap up. And that's essentially, I guess, the thesis of, of this, you know, movie. And it's, it's, it's very powerful. I'll ask first James as someone who isn't in this, you know, world day to day, except, you know, with the nuclear danger still above your head. What did you think of how that movie wrapped up? I, I, I had a lot of questions, I guess. And the first one was like, well, what are they, what was the chain reaction? Was it the nuclear arms race in the Cold War? I guess that's like the literal, literal. Yeah interpretation of that right like, oh what could be what could happen yeah the the fear of that right is it i mean i guess you could think more broadly is it is the chain reaction like our creation of technology that will ultimately destroy us in one way or another like it doesn't have to be mm-hmm. you know atomic atomic it doesn't have to be necessarily the atomic era or but i mean you, you think of all sorts of things that come out of that like is our creation of the internet and social media like is that a chain reaction that will destroy us. There's a lot of, like, you could think pretty broadly about that statement. So I've been thinking about that in the, I don't know, 36 hours since <laughs> I've left the theater um, about what they actually meant there. I don't know, maybe we'll get into more of this, but I, you know, it's like, well, I guess this leads into our next, our next question about advancing the dialogue. And I don't want to jump on that. Well, 
Well, I want to turn it to Justin. When you saw that, as a, as a, a person who talks about the role of deterrence as a, as a mechanism for uh, managing this danger, what was your reaction when you when you saw that? Was it a, you know, an eye roll? Was it a, a gut check? Could be many things yeah. as this world is. But what what was your reaction uh, to how that movie concludes? I had two simultaneous thoughts, uh, which I shared with you after the movie. Very, very Oppenheimer of you. <laughs> right, exactly. Well, it fits with the entire, and I think it fits with the, the whole the whole movie, and, I, and I'm sure that's deliberate. One was that I felt it was actually unfair to historical Oppenheimer and interesting because the movie is so accurate and, and hues closely, deliberately so to history for so much of it. But this is a fictionalized conversation. Right. And I felt it was a little unfair because I don't think r- real Oppenheimer would say something so definitive. I think he certainly had a sense of the weight of what he did. Uh, certainly, especially later in life, there seemed to be a degree of fatalism uh, to, to some of it. But on the other hand, uh, there's also stories about how years later, he and his wife would you know, celebrate every, I think, Trinity, basically Trinity Day. Hmm. I don't think he would ever say something so firmly definitive as what we did set in motion something you know so terrible and it's so sort of conclusive but at the same time i was like this is the right end to the movie and the the reason why is because well a movie has to even a nolan movie has to end (laughs) even a nolan movie about how i'm going to bend the nature of time must come to a conclusion. You need some sort of conclusive statement. And it it does wrap up the conversation with Einstein and the movie, I think, quite well in a way that is narratively satisfying and makes sense. And lastly, because as, as James, I think, already articulated, I felt this was the point of the movie where it shifts from this is real Oppenheimer, but there is a way in which he's an avatar for science and technology and how the development of science and technology both advances human civilization, but also may give humans the means by which they can destroy themselves. It shifts to the end of the movie. He is full avatar. He's kind of stepped. He still looks like Oppenheimer, but he is fully this avatar for something that Nolan considers really important, cares a lot about, is is a through line for his movies and so that's where it makes a a narrative sense not just for this film but sort of for his overall uh filmography and i think yes i'm a proponent of nuclear deterrent but i want people to talk about the threats and challenges and dilemmas of being in the nuclear age that's where i think it it did also make sense to show those scenes you just you just labeled of which call a, a throwback, I think, to a lot of Cold War movies. Right. Uh, you know, I really thought of the the you know Cold War movies like Strange Love and Failsafe and things like that. And I think Nolan's directly borrowing from those. And so I I think it makes it makes sense for the movie. And if it stimulates conversation, I I, I think that's right. And I hope is something that comes out of it. So I felt those those things at the same time. The tension there. And you're right. It's a it's an acute tension, uh, with that is within the movie and within the character of Oppenheimer. And I felt he he landed the plane on that with that ending. Just just to go off what Justin said there, and I didn't 
one of the few few reviews I, I I listened to actually the way they put that and this isn't my idea so I, and I can't remember what it was so I won't credit them but um, it was it's like it's not a Murphy's performance is not a portrayal it's a portal that's the way I felt through a lot of movies him being you know who your your audience avatar who you're experiencing the movie through it's like he's the one bringing you into these into these rooms. And at the end, he is a portal to this question. He's no longer a character or a person. He's just a portal to this idea. And I think, you know, as Justin was saying, perhaps historically that's unfair and maybe perhaps uh, it's unfair to Oppenheimer's legacy in a lot of ways because at this point he ceases being a character and he is just a, a vessel. Um, and I think that's, I th- and I think that's actually a legitimate criticism. Um, for for a movie huh. that is largely, I think, a very tight biopic. Nolan and uh, many in the in our field, uh, from many different angles, have tried to say this is a movie that could potentially start a conversation. I think Nolan also mentioned at one point it's a Rorschach test of like you can project onto you Oppenheimer what you want to get out of it, which is yeah, I mean, and that's a lot of Nolan's movies that kind of end that way. I'm always curious. So will this? What will people take away from this? Is it is nuclear danger still around, or is that something that was then? Uh, and I also have a, a odd thought this morning. Like, is the pairing of the cultural moment of Barbie and Oppenheimer, and people wanting to take those two divergent things and and bring that together in both a meme and a, I'm sure Hollywood loves a, a ticket buying double experience. Does that expose people to a subject matter that they might not normally entertain? Or does it, you know, potentially, because I'm a pessimist, sometimes belittle the content to just being like a popcorn meme thing of, oh, well, we're going to bring these two funny ideas together and maybe they're not actually going to get what the content is. I'm hopeful that if you get exposed to this movie, you're going to feel something and it's not going to be what you initially expected. But I wonder what is the, what potential conversation and dialogue can this have? And I think it is what you're all talking about. It's like the role of open debate amongst these questions. Cause nuclear secrecy is, you know, the name of that blog uh, that, that Wellerstein puts together. And it's definitely something that a lot of critics have put together that people can have open conversations about nuclear weapons, deterrence and other things, because it ultimately sometimes can come down to, well, if you have a clearance, Great. You shouldn't talk about it. Do you have? Do you don't have a clearance? Well, you don't. You don't know what the the situation is, or you're not an, invested enough in the in the, t- the subject matter. You don't understand these factors, and you're kind of being a little more naive. And this debate that comes up and down, I think, when new people come to the field and come to DC or want to be involved, in this, I think the the audience gets a, a taste of that of the debate between scientists and policymakers. And I think that is going to be one of the main takeaways from this film and less so about potentially maybe nuclear weapons specifically, but more about the role of, of open discussions on things that are concerning to us. And uh, I think Nolan even mentions at one point that while nukes are important, AI is the next thing where we could potentially have a debate about before it's too late. I think this movie's fascinating also for what it chooses to leave out people have already talked about this there's not a lot of female scientists highlighting the movie there's a handful there's more than there is in fat man a little boy uh there's a character named lily hornberg uh who's a plutonium chemist and uh, ultimately worked on the explosive lens she's a real life person that they, that they cover and there's many other people if you want to read more about this denise kindren's uh the girls of atomic city great great book on the subject matter there's not really a role for kitty 
all that much in this movie. I think Emily Blunt's performance was amazing. Kitty had a bigger role in Oppenheimer's life than I think they really do describe, but they have to focus on something, otherwise the movie would be five hours. There's not a lot of mention about the other individuals who are suffering from this that need to often be part of the discussion. There's like downwinders or the health challenges from people faced from uranium mining or the testing. Uh, That's not really kind of there. They didn't talk at all about the plutonium or uranium cycle, but that's okay. You know, you have to focus on something, but some movies try to do a little bit of everything. Not something that Justin, you and I were wondering if they were going to include. There's not a lot of debate about, at one point during the Manhattan Project, an intel started to come through that the bomb project in Germany really was never really moving and advancing it to the level that they thought it would be. Funny enough, it was they mentioned this in the movie, Pash, the Casey Affleck character, was sent away by Groves to stop focusing on Oppenheimer and to go to Europe. And that was a real life thing that happened. It was part of a research uh, effort that Pash was going to go talk to some of the former members of the scientific community that were involved in the potential bomb project for Germany and listen to them and find out how far along they were. I think the story is fascinating because they basically got a bunch of them drunk and recorded their like discussions in jail about how far along they were. And essentially they come to the conclusion that they weren't really all that advanced. And the famous telegram from Pash to Groves was... Quote, mother had no baby, not even pregnant. Doctors pronounce her infertile. Mentioned there, code words for Germany never actually had a bomb project. They didn't really mention that because that obviously is a big role for maybe demotivating some of the scientists that were involved here. They choose to focus on stuff I think that actually does create a very coherent narrative about Oppenheimer and the other issues. And that's where I want to move next to our parking lot discussion, which we'll only have a short stop at the parking lot because we look at our watches and we go, man, we got to get to work the next day. <laughs> so it's a, it's a court, it's a short discussion, but I, we mentioned earlier, Justin, about like the fission fusion kind of parallel stories. And I'd love to get James, your thoughts on this too, but how I see that intro framing, you know, fission is describing Oppenheimer's life. He's a guy who is constantly involved in contradictions Uh, He wants to disrupt things. He's a matter of father of the fission bomb itself. And he is his own division in his own life and tries to be involved in that kind of that aspect of breaking down barriers for discussions among scientists, brings people together by breaking down those barriers. And you get fusion, which is a bit of a, I think, an analogy in a way for Strauss's, you know, life. He wants to consolidate power bring it together to himself. He wants the United States to get stronger. And if he gets credit for that, then he gets more power and builds that together. And it also tied to the H-bomb project and fusion science that he tried to advance or at least stop Oppenheimer from slowing down. So at a very basic level, there's that fusion-fission dynamic, but I'm sure there's something I'm missing because I'm in the weeds of, oh, there's the science of it is connecting to these characters. What did you take away James, from that as a framing device at the very beginning of the movie. Yeah, I think you're right in in the way you're describing it. Um, I guess the only thing I would add is that, like, you can't have one without the other, yeah. or, you, or, or you can't have you can't have fusion without fission, right? Um, so Strauss is this quote unquote self made man who is a not a not a, a lowly shoe salesman, just a shoe salesman, <laughs> um, as as we we established in the beginning but his political rise i think is built entirely on what oppenheimer and these scientists did so it's like they are the fission that was going to enable his fusion but um ultimately they did not allow that reaction to happen i guess um so (laughs) would you say that his political career fizzled 
it's political <laughs> career fizzling. Yeah. Um, no, I, th I think that's, I think your framing of it is, is really, is really good. And I, I, I think he's an, a really interesting, interesting character, Strauss. And uh, obviously it's great to see Robert Downey Jr. doing something that doesn't, doesn't involve a, um, you know, a multiverse. So um, <laughs> um, just, just give it, give it time when uh, Oppenheimer plays with black holes some more. That's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. There's also a lot of great hearing scenes with um, Iron Man um, in the first or second movie. I forget what it was, but I mean, Justin, for you, yeah. what, 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 what are we, what did you take away from, from that uh, parallel stories? Like, do you think that was a good device that uh, Oppenheimer used to tell this in one without the other or how, how what do you what do you take away from this yeah thanks I, I i think you've probably already covered the the narrative and filmmaking reasons and there are probably a couple more um that we're not thinking of right now for why you they they label fission and fusion to oppenheimer and straws right from the beginning of the movie um to your other question i think you need a device like that because let's face it, you need a vil the, the villain actually isn't at the end of the day, the Nazis. I, I mean, it sort <laughs> of is. And I was kind of making, you know, it kind of noted before they make, make great movie making vision or villains, but you don't actually see any Nazis in the film. They're, you know, they're there in the, 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 the boogeyman you don't actually see. So you need some sort of foil for Oppenheimer. Robert Downey Jr. is a great one. And I, I, I understand also the reason for the last third of the movie to be, you know, the, the trials and sins of J. Robert Oppenheimer, but then also the, the, the hearing where indeed uh, things implode for straws so that it doesn't just end with Oppenheimer, you know, being destroyed. Right. You need that sort of, which in fact is real life, the fact that Straws destroying Oppenheimer does derail him becoming a cabinet official, which was immensely consequential for him too. It, it all makes a narrative sense. I have to admit, it feels a little long at the end. Okay, and I and then possibly Nolan out outsmarts himself a little bit, a little you know too clever by half, uh, as our our British uh, colleagues would say. It, it's hard though to say what to cut. Because it is great. It's great acting. It's great dialogue. It kind of works on its own. But you see some extra. I feel the machinery and just the weight of of time, uh, which po possibly is felt uh, on behalf of our podcast listeners too, uh, too uh, is there at the at the very end of of the movie. Yeah, it's it's. I loved um, two things at the end. Of one, of which Albert Einstein mentions. You know, at some point they may reward and it's funny to think that he would be able to see this it's how, how good he was at seeing the future but they show scenes of him uh oppenheimer getting an award later later in life uh after he gets a bit more vindicated after these hearings show how awful uh strauss was you know in, in the in the story he was supposed to get this by jfk teller got the uh, rico fermi award the year before and the next one was going to go to oppenheimer but you know gets assassinated and, and is unable to to, to get, deliver it but lbj provides it and it's a moment of like redemption for for oppenheimer and it's a not long before after that, he dies from, you know, pretty serious lung cancer uh, and, and throat cancer. But any, anyways, uh, there's a moment where Albert Einstein says, they may eventually come back to you and give you a medal or shake your hands, but it's not for you, it's for them. And it's an interesting, you know, very p 
fatalistic you know sense of that i love also very much there's a uh when he mentions the person who was one of the holdouts that eventually votes against strauss and they mention like oh it's this new senator it's something jfk uh jeff you know it's almost like he's presenting it like it's a nolan batman movie and they're slightly hinting at the joker oh there's this character you're gonna care about him later he's gonna be in, in the he's gonna be in the sequel anyway that was kind of funny this is a huge movie and this is a large large production for in our field of, of nuclear you know weapons and it's definitely the biggest movie of the year that we're going to be covering that's come out this year uh because james i think that finally mission impossible stopped talking about nukes for a little bit so we're probably not going to get that one this one around um oh no i know oh but justin you and i have been talking about what is this movie place in terms of the history of the nuclear catalog yeah so you know i'll ask the question is this the greatest nuclear movie of all time and other possible candidates are of course strange love which is on the American Film Institute's top 50 movies. It's the one nuclear-themed movie that's that's up that high. And of course, there are other consequential movies. You think Failsafe. Uh, more recently, you think of movies like Crimson Tide and War Games. Um, they're all great movies. I just, I, I, I wonder if, you know, it almost feels too trite or too... Now, maybe me being too clever by half to be like, this will be our generation's strange love. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the parallels are interesting. Kubrick, an immensely consequential, pioneering, visionary filmmaker with a distinctive style, decides to do a movie that's all about nuclear weapons that is both quite compelling and has amazing performances by some magnificent actors. And also, you know, manages to communicate some really important messages, but not in a way that you're going to hit over the head. So I'll turn the question. I, I've not fully resolved that in my own mind because I'm aware of recency mm-hmm. bias. I think this is an amazing movie. I think it's one I'll be thinking and talking about, you know, a, a lot more in the future. But let me flip the question to both of you. Is this the most super critical movie of hmm. all time? James, what do you think? Because I'm gonna you, you get yeah, you get me I mean, riled up. But what do you think? I, I mean, without a doubt. I mean, this is a, this is a major summer blockbuster movie about the Manhattan Project. I mean, this is, I mean, you know, Doctor Strange Love is Doctor Strange Love, but this is on a whole nother level. Uh, we don't get many monocultural events like this anymore. Like everyone from my dad to the uber driver to like that i took to the movie he was like the uber driver was like oh yeah i'm going to see it on tuesday like i mean every <laughs> yeah like everyone is going to see this movie and you don't get too many moments like that cultural anymore and 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 we were talking about barbara earlier but it's it's very weird that these are both happening at the same time and uh i think it's but it's it's good for movies as justin was saying at the beginning movies are back but tim i, I i'll throw it to you but then i i do have a question actually that's not in the notes and i know we're long but so forever i will always argue to anyone who will listen to me you know people at parties or whatever i probably sick of me talking about this but i have always felt like strange love is the best nuclear war movie it's the best movie in the genre that you know in a nuclear war movie i think from a like entertaining and comedy perspective its message and what it how well thought out it is i think it's the best movie in the genre but is it the best movie about nuclear war that to me has always been threads um, because of mm. the powerful visuals, the way that the, it's structured, 
the history behind its creation and what that movie leaves you when I every time I see it, it just messes me up. And I've seen this movie so many times and it's still just very powerful. And again, that movie, again, doesn't have like a it doesn't try to tell you and convince you, like, here's the five ways to get rid of nuclear weapons. It just shows you what a likely scenario could be should deterrence break down and provides, I think, a reasonable you know pathway to that. And that movie, I think, is the best movie about nuclear war and kind of what that might look like. This one, I don't know where it places between these two. I, I need some space and distance from it. I think it is the biggest movie that I can think of about nuclear weapons and nuclear war by itself in terms of, as you mentioned, the the Nolan production, the money that went into it, the visuals and what attention that it got in the moment in history. But, you know, it depends also annoyingly, it may be really irritating by this, but it depends what you define as a nuclear war movie because like Independence Day was pretty big. And is that a nuclear <laughs> war movie? No, it's a nuke right. movie. Well, and, and actually, you know, we won't know for years, the answer to the question, is this the most consequential sure. yeah. nuclear war movie? And what's interesting is that arguably that's the day after exactly, the television yeah. movie. Or threads for the UK, but it, yes, for the day after in the United States, yeah. absolutely. And and that's because Reagan tells, I can't remember, is either the director or the producer later, oh, this was part, you know, when we were negotiating INF treaty and my you know, ultimate support for it, in part I had your your movie on my mind. That's the maybe the most consequential one. I think we're going to have to see. I think it's definitely going to be uh, the movie that I'm going to have the most conversations about over the next year. Uh, I, I both treasure all of the people coming up to me that aren't in the nuclear field asking me for my opinion about it. But I also know fully, I look at them and I, 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 get a, I read a quick read like, do you really want to hear me talk about it for three hours? Because I can give you the podcast link and I can give you the, <laughs> yeah, right. I can give you the five minute version. Uh, yeah. I felt, I felt just that way at a party this on Sunday. Like, do you really want to talk to me about this? Cause I, I'm the guy that will be too intense having a conversation right. about this. And they just like, dude, I just wanted to know if you liked it, but we'll see. We're going to see how this goes. Let us rate this movie uh, Oppenheimer out of five, with one being the absolute worst thing you've ever seen, five being the best thing ever. We tailor the rating system uh, because if we're going to get super critical about the plot, we're going to do that too. Let's rate Oppenheimer on a scale of one out of five cigarettes dangling out of Oppenheimer's mouth because <laughs> at every point in the movie, you see him just slightly dangling that cigarette. That's his default. It's pretty much how he does his best thinking. But imagine if he had five cigarettes at once uh dangling how much more efficient he could be and of course yeah we know how ultimately his life you know passed with this with with cancer so i'm not trying to belittle that but just the thinking of how he would have worked um i give this 4.5 cigarettes dangling from oppenheimer's mouth it's a must see in the theater it covers a very complex subject in a very entertaining way i want to i cannot wait to learn more about what the non-nerd people get out of this i'm going to be asking this constantly uh, at parties and I, I think the only thing that holds off from a perfect movie for me it took me a while to get into it the very first third i loved but i was wondering what what's going on with this like weird superpower that he's having of like is he is he is he an x-men mutant who's coming of age and his powers are forming and he's seen visuals because that's a nolan i could have gone down that path and i was distracted that's a small thing but the rest of the movie really truly you're not going to get many fives out of me i think i've only done maybe two of those on the podcast so far 4.5 is probably one of the best you're going to get out of me. Absolutely fantastic. If people want to see this movie, absolutely need to see it in the theater. Um, and I hope that this movie is shown in the theater multiple times 
James, maybe we want to drive down to, up to Philly and see this in the 70 millimeter uh, like we're supposed to, like Nolan wants. What about you? Would love to. I give it a 4.75 out of 5. Uh, 4.75 cigarettes dangling, dangling out of uh, J.R. Oppenheimer's mouth, lit off of an implosion. <laughs> implosion explosive. Um, <laughs> near perfect. Uh, if there's a flaw, it's that I think after the Trinity test, it's really tough to return to the procedural story where the stakes are whether or not this guy retains a security clearance. It's not as exciting as the first two thirds of the movie. Uh, with that said, I found those kind of courtroom drama scenes really compelling. I liked them. Um, I think you could levy a reasonable criticism that this is really two or three movies trying to be one movie. For me, that all works, but I am sympathetic to those critics that say that it doesn't work for them for that reason. Um, this is maybe the best project management movie ever made. Yeah. Um, which uh, you know, if, if you're listening, please tweet us, tweet at us <laughs> if you or X or X at us if um, if you disagree. Uh, that'll happen today. Wow. Um, my least favorite part was is that was the JFK thing. I wrote yeah. my eyes. I hated it. I mean, it, just it, it just <laughs> it 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 happened. It's one of those weird things that like if this was if you were if you were writing this movie as a, a pure fiction. The editor would scratch this off. Uh, Justin, what do you think about uh, this movie? How do you, how many cigarettes are you dangling in this mouth? I, I'm with you. Four point five, four cigarettes with a half, you know, <laughs> a half smoke cigarette there, there held in his hands. People need to go see this movie. I, I, I obviously, I'm going to feel that way as someone who works in the nuclear policy field. But I also think it operates on the level of this is an important movie for people to see and experience as a work of art but also as something to hopefully discuss afterward and all these big themes not just about nuclear weapons but about the role of science and technology and kind of where you know, where we are now uh and, and some of the you know both magnificent things it's given us but also the costs and consequences too 4.5 if a three-hour conversation wasn't enough for you to um, put Oppenheimer stuff in your brain, um, <laughs> J J uh, Justin, do you have anything you want to recommend people to check out before they uh, move on to the next new movie that we're going to be talking about? Anything in the genre, movies, uh, background materials, anything you'd recommend people to pursue this further? I'd I recommend people check out the book. Um, American Prometheus is a, re a remarkable work, and it, it's worth reading, and I, I think you'll get a lot out of it even if you've uh, seen the movie. So I strongly recommend people to do that. I've also really enjoyed uh, the um, graphic novel, uh, uh, Bomb, which uh, covers the Manhattan Project from a, a different perspective, but uh, one of my sons have really enjoyed reading that and it mm. makes uh, the story accessible um, you know, to uh, kids too. So that's the two things I'd think of right away. Well, thanks, Justin, for that. I've got some stuff to recommend, too. Um, one is a book that I've always been uh, been reading for a long, long time because it was given to me on my last day as an intern at the Arms Control Association. Uh, it's a book called Brotherhood of the Bomb, The Tangled Lives and Loyalties of Robert Oppenheimer, Ernest Lawrence, and Edward Teller uh, by Greg Harkin from 2002. It takes much more of a, a focus on these three particular scientists, their role, their friendship. And ultimately, they're breaking apart of their friendship when they over the H-bomb. Uh, I, I think it's another great look at this. It's not as, you know, it's not as thick as uh, American Prometheus, but it's a pretty good one um, to, to be able to look at. I recommend another graphic novel illustrated that, you know, to combine what Justin had mentioned. This one just called Trinity, a graphic history of the first atomic bomb from 2013 by Jonathan Fetter Vorm. 
it's another very accessible, but don't give it to your young children because it's very, also, imagery is very graphic of um, the post-war effects, but as a illustrated comic book of the history of the Atomic Bomb Project with a lot of references to Oppenheimer and others. It's a great uh, way to, to introduce people to this field. That Oppenheimer TV miniseries st starring Sam Waterston, it's not bad. It's a little hokey. It's easy to find online uh, on YouTube, so I do recommend seeing that as a maybe palate cleanser uh, to the intensity of this movie. And I don't recommend the movie Fat Man and Little Boy from 1989, but the conversation with uh, Kay Hewitt and Aaron Connolly is a really fun one, and I cannot wait to talk to them about their takes on this movie. So listen to that. James, where um, should people be directing their eyes to next um, after they're done with all of this? Yeah, so I, I, I guess I'll, I won't frame these necessarily as recommendations, but just interesting things to watch after you see this maybe, just to think about it. Mm -hmm. The one thing that came out was The Imitation Game. Um, it's the movie uh, about Alan Turing from 2014 about how he cracked the the nazi code um the enigma machine and this is starring j benedict oppenheimerbach Humber, oppenheimerbach yeah okay exactly um because i'm kind of a movie psycho i put this on last night at about 9 30 p.m you're insane um, and decided to watch it uh and i actually watched another movie after that too <laughs> um, anyway i think it's an example of like how I, I and i like this movie but i think this is how oppenheimer could have been done in a more conventional way and perhaps could have gone very wrong and i'm glad christopher nolan did it in the way that he did which we've discussed at length in this podcast but like this is just a much more staid traditional narrative world war ii science movie i guess and i think it's interesting to watch these kind of together just because like it's cool to see the line between good and great and sometimes it's tough to see what that is but this is like the Imitation Game is a good movie. Oppenheimer is a great movie. Okay. <laughs> and, and, I, I've, uh, been, I've think... been holding off from watching Imitation Game for a while. This is a... Now I really want to... It's 11 o'clock here. I can probably finish it before I have to go to work. Okay, good, great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, anyway, oh, we've talked... It's not about that movie, so watch your... The Social Network, 2010, written by um, uh, Aaron Sorkin, directed by David Fincher. It's about inventing something that might kill us all <laughs> um, or might destroy our society. Um, or inventing something that we don't totally know, to know how to control. The movie cuts itself off kind of before those questions about Facebook and democracy and elections come into focus. But like, this is about the creation of the thing. Um, and I think it's interesting to think about these two things in parallel, um, not to draw false parallels between the atomic bomb and, and social media. But yeah, I think I think their impact on society is is probably... Fair, fair to draw the parallel. Well, it's cer it's certainly where people have a lot of conversations about nuclear weapons, and it's a lot of uh, literature. Like, there's a alternate history fictional thing that Jeffrey Lewis, uh, who's a um, person who now works over at the Middlebury Institute, wrote uh, about. Like, I think it's like the Commission on the War uh, Nuclear War with North Korea. It's a it's not the title, but it's a nuclear war that starts because of tweets, essentially uh, providing false information about an ongoing crisis and causing escalation. So it's, unfortunately, it's very much connected and, and tied into this. Yeah, I mean, you know, and it's also what is the, the, 
the most dangerous thing perhaps in the 21st century is is, is yep. information or or false information right i don't have a third this time around i'm going to i'm going to challenge you really quickly to think about this so as a tabletop gamer industry person i would love it if every movie you came up with a card that was based parallel to our stuff you brought in the armageddon card uh, which is destroy all lands last go around when we covered damnation alley i want you to think about a card either magic or something tabletop related that connects to what we're trying to accomplish here maybe a famous scientist or someone else but so there, here, this this one is actually right in my hand it's oh my gosh wide, widespread annihilation um it's from the new uh the new set from the game called flesh and blood and basically it says um when it, when the combat chain closes each each hero heroes are like what people control who has lost life this turn banishes a card from the hand. it's basically if you've lost life you have to banish more resources. So it's sort of like a chain reaction. Oh. You've lost life. You've lost life. And if you've lost life, you lose more. So um, that's the chain reaction that we love it. Maybe talked about. That, that took like five <laughs> seconds. I love this. And the game is called, the game's called Flesh and Blood. They have a new set out called uh, Dusk Till Dawn. Um, it's a very fun tabletop game if you like that stuff. It's from nice. New Zealand. Good game. So what I was going to do was I want to ask one more person about another thing they should be recommending. Uh, I'm going to, maybe we'll do a little seance here. I want to ask Oppenheimer, what are some things that he would recommend us to, to read and watch? Cause he was asked in 1963 by Christian century magazine, what books shaped his quote vocational attitude and philosophy on life. He lists a bunch of these things and I will put the link to the um, interview and or whatnot in the show notes, but a couple of things he recommends. The Wasteland by T.S. Eliot. You actually see him reading this in the movie, and he brought T.S. Eliot as a, a guest um, adjunct, whatever, over at Princeton for a bit. The Divine Comedy by Dante. Uh, definitely something that fitting very much one in his general thematics. The uh, The Hindu Bible is another one that he references and quotes from a lot, but that's definitely something, uh, whether you have to read in the original Sanskrit or not, but it'd be recommended. Hamlet by Shakespeare is something that he finds a lot of comfort and connection with and then finally he recommends checking out michael faraday the famous scientist uh his notebooks alternately named faraday's diary describes that a lot of kind of his thinking about science and the role of a scientist in uh, humanity and in terms of uh, policy so thank you everybody including oppenheimer for uh, recommending this here Justin, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Have a long chat. Where can people find out more of your work and where can they find you? I know you're on Twitter at um, Atomic underscore Chess, by the way. Excellent, excellent name. Where else can people find some of your, your stuff if they want to seek out you more? Thanks, Tim. Yeah, Atomic underscore Chess on Twitter and uh, on threads. And just look up uh, National Defense University Center for the Study of WMD. Uh, all our public-facing stuff is there, myself and my colleagues. Uh, that's where you can you can find uh, much of my work. Um, you can also find stuff I've written in the past for Strategic Studies Quarterly on their website, Arms Control Wonk. Uh, I have a couple uh, past columns there, Arms Control Today as well. So, you know, uh, always happy to talk about any of this stuff at any time on social media or otherwise. And thanks so much, guys, for having me on this. This is absolutely really a, a phenomenal experience both in the theater and getting to talk with you guys about this i've really enjoyed it thank you you're going to be back and we're going to get you a really simple nice uh not fully <laughs> life-changing movie and we'll, we'll place you on that one too so thanks again james we know we could find you you're at jay sheehan dc on twitter 
Uh, but thanks, right. thank you again for joining us in this wonderful endeavor. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Supercritical Podcast. If you have any suggestions for future episodes or you want to tell us what we got wrong, uh, either nuke-wise or, you know, Tim, I've got a life too. I got a long road trip, but maybe you can cut these podcasts down a little bit shorter or into multiple parts. A couple ways you can complain about that to me. I'm on Twitter slash X, whatever it happens to be these days, at Nuclear Podcast. We've got a website, supercriticalpodcast.com, or you can email me at supercriticalpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time. This has been Tim Westmeyer. And James J.R. Sheehan. <laughs> Excellent. What's the J stand for? Uh, nothing? Okay. James, James again. Yeah, James again. James, Love James, it. James James R. Sheehan, yeah. Perfect. And remember, if it's pop culture and radioactive, we are bound to get super critical about it. Have a good one. Cheers. Cheers.